Vintage Championship finalist Paul Mastriano and New York tournament organizer Nick Detweiler on episode 6 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 6 of So Many Insane Plays. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hey, folks. We're coming at you live from Gen Con 2011 in the aftermath of the Vintage Championship. And we have a special guest with us today. We have Vintage Championship finalist, creator of Type 4, discoverer of Steve Menendian, man about town, and all-around good guy, Paul Mastriano. Paul? Hey, how's it going, guys? So, for those of you who may not understand, Paul just took second place in the Vintage Championship... Steve was also in the top eight, taking third-slash-fourth third, place. Third place. Third place, good. And so we've got some good rundown for you here of what happened in that, that tournament and the top eight specifically. Do you want to dive into the constituents of the top eight to start with? It was a very diverse top eight. It was awesome. The, to the casual observer, they might not even understand how intricately diverse it was, but it speaks to what you and I, Steve, had talked to about the diversity in the format, how many different choices there are. So what was in the top eight and who played what? All right, I'm going to need your help with names. I got them if you want to know. Go okay. Ahead. I know for sure what the entire topic was. Just run it, just run it down. Yeah. <clears throat> there was Rich Shea, and he was playing his Gush deck, which was fairly similar to the East Coast wins that, like, uh, Sean Anthony and those people have been playing. I think it was probably maybe maybe ten cards off at the most. He had notable inclusion was Mental Missteps. Four. Well, four Mental Missteps. Sean Anthony and them were definitely playing four Mental Missteps okay. for okay. the last, like, month or so. I, he had changed. He had I know he three, had but, but four. Went to four. Okay. Yeah, they, all, they definitely had four. And he had Library of Alexandria. He had tendrils in his list. They didn't have. Twister. They didn't have a storm kill anymore. He had time twister. So and his list was a little bit Colossus. more. It was a little more storm focused. Yeah. And I noticed that when Rich was playing, he definitely was storming out against people a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's Ryan Glacken who was playing cat stacks. There was Joe Brown playing painter. There was with Nick Cross with Ramoras. Uh, the painter deck is a nightmare for the standard <laughs> gush deck because it has. Mainboard Mystic Remoras, mainboard Red Blast, and mainboard Mind Break Traps. So it's a hybrid Remora painter deck. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately absolutely. for him, he got paired against Cat Stacks and had Which a, was a, the nightmare matchup. For a him. weak mana draw to boot, and he yeah. got thrashed. Uh, speaking of nightmare matchups, Nick Koss played the Minus Six, which is the World Border Dragon deck with the transformational sideboard. And because of the transformational sideboard, he doesn't really pack any dredge hate. And he got paired against Mark Hornung playing dredge uh-huh. in the first round of the top eight, which. <laughs> Is probably a, a gift pairing for Mark, who right. eventually did win it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, of course, Steve and I were both playing the Bob main Gush. deck Bob Gush. Yeah. And what was the difference between your two? Uh, I had the Time Vault combo in my list, and I also had Soul Ring in my mana base. I had maybe one card different in the sideboard as well. Mm-hmm. And Steve had Vendillion Clicks, where I had Time Vault Key. We'll get. We'll talk about those differences later. So oh, yeah. subtle differences, really, but. Uh, beyond that, um, what's interesting? I think so. Th- is that the entire topic? No, we're missing oh, the bug. bug. Yeah, and, yeah I there played that a, guy. And there was a bug fish deck, which I didn't actually get to see the entire list of. I only saw him play a little bit, so I, I guess Steve would know a little bit more. I don't about think he had forces. He had Trigon Predator, Life from the Loam, um, Goyfs, Goyfs, Bob's, Goyfs, and Bob's, and he had Jace. and he clicked too. He had Life from the Loam and Jace. Life from the Loam and Jace. Yeah. But what, just on, on the Rich Shea list, uh, so the Sean Anthony list, I'd seen his most recent list. And it looked like he had gone from three mental missteps in the tournament probably two or three weeks ago to two. And people were asking him, how does he get away with that in a shop metagame? And he said, well, there are no shops in my, my metagame. And I, I thought that in the prelim tournament, he only had three. He may not have had four. But Rich Shea said, I'm running four. And 
Kevin, you point something out to me. When he was in a match and he was yog willing, mm-hmm. what mental misstep was pretty important. Well, it feeds his storm combo. He yog-willed with a mental misstep in his graveyard and one in his hand, and he didn't need to do it because he had just enough with a Hercules recall. But if he needed to, he could have played... A one-man He could have played Mystical Tutor out of his graveyard and mental misstep that twice to build his storm by two more for the cost of four life. It's It's got incredible synergy with the storm kill. Right. Yeah. Especially since it's not like... You just naturally get a huge number of storm out of that deck a lot of times. Yeah, I found him Hercules recalling himself a handful of times in the tournament to build the storm. Yeah. He ran, I think he was up to three or four Hercs after board, especially, I mean, against shops, of course, but he had at least one main deck. I saw him playing with drains, uh, Rich Shea playing with drains yeah. the day before, so did he still have drains? Did you I, think, I didn't notice any. I think he did in his deck, but maybe he just didn't draw no, against No, he didn't play against me. Yeah. Did you know, you, I remember he drained, oh, yeah. he drained something and then middle misstepped something, and he untapped with four mana. Yeah. Remember that game? I, I do. He was definitely playing with drains the, yeah, in the Swiss, so he had them. Yeah, so he never played them against Paul. Oh, he didn't have against me. <laughs> he just had um, very fast combo action. But it was a pretty epic top eight. Yeah, absolutely. It really was. So let's talk about how the top eight played out. Top eight pairings were Steve against the Bugfish player, mm-hmm. and we, I don't remember his name. His name was Joseph. Joe, it was Joe, Joseph something. Something, yeah. With a B. It was a G. It's G, okay. Uh, it might have been B. <clears throat> so Steve defeated him in in two long games, right? Very long. Two long because and that was long because they had very similar creature bases, Bobs and Trigons and Clicks. Yeah. And and when you have a couple of Trigons on the board, it's very difficult to get combat damage right, through. Steelman. We were yeah. fighting over the mana the whole time. Oh, he had he, Null Rod. He had a Null Rod in play, and I had Yogwill and Black Lotus in my hand. <laughs> and so we were. A trigon. I think I saw the tail end of that game. It was yeah. a Trigon war. Yeah. I had two Trigons. He had one in Jace. And it was literally a, sta- a stalemate standoff. Talk about how that game finished. It was kind of a hilarious because I tweeted afterwards about oh, man, the, with, the finish of that with game. With light steel. Yeah. Well, because you tinkered for blight steel, <laughs> but he had Trigon I, and Jace. What happened? I broke the stalemate because I pondered into Bat Bond. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, I really want to kill that Null Rod, but I can. I have just enough life at like 12 life that I can fast bond and do tri- uh, Tinker Time Walk. But I had with the Yogmas will with the Yogmas will. Sorry, I, yeah. I had with the fast bond. I was able to Yog will. Yeah. I had just enough life with the fast bond and got two gushes to get to like one or two life and tinker and time walk. Mm-hmm. But I had to attack the Jace first. <laughs> I remember seeing that. I was like, man, Jace yeah. got killed so hard. <laughs> and, 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 the re- and the reason is, and the reason is, is that he had Trigon Predator. So if you just attack him, he chumps with Trigon, chumps with, gets another turn, die, and, and he bounces, bounces the, the right. Steel. So yeah. Steve was forced to attack Jace with Blightsteel bosses, and that was the first time I'd ever seen. That I never saw life. that happen. Yeah. <laughs> and I was in it. I heard people like laughing about it. I didn't. Like, that's what I had to do, right? But now that I'm sitting here thinking about it. It's, it's pretty amusing. Invented Blightsteel Colossus attacks Jace. <laughs> Classic. So let's talk about another matchup then. So Paul, what was your first round matchup? I played against Rich, which I don't know why that wasn't a feature match. That is a feature match. Well, Nate, Nate Price epic. told us that his logic was he thought the Dragon Dredge game was, match was going to be over fast, and it wasn't. It was like the longest one in the top, the first round. <laughs> The second longest one. But so Paul and Rich finished before that other one did, which is why I, it didn't get covered. I wanted, I want to, I would pay like $40 to watch that game. <laughs> Pay-per-view? Like, like, yeah. If I could pay It was really that, intense. I wish someone had a camera. I would, I would pay to watch that right now. I want to see that so bad. Paul, run it down So hard. bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the, in the first game, he definitely got Tinker Blightsteel out pretty fast. And I spent some time searching for an answer to it, and I was a little bit short of mana. I was kind of short, hung up on a little bit of mana the entire game. So I think it probably only went like maybe three turns yeah. each. 
And in the third turn, I actually found the Hercules recall, but I only had one mana available and I couldn't pay. Yeah. Mm. And I got killed. Yeah. Then in game two... Game two, I definitely was able to yog will against him on turn two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was able to serve it back to him. Yeah. Did you have fast bond or lotus? You had fast bond. I had fast bond, oh, yeah. I, t- I comboed out pretty quickly on I turn think, two. I think you had turn I had time. Bond. I had time lock, I believe, on turn one to set it up so that okay. my... It was actually my third turn, but yeah. it was turn two right, right, right. as far as it goes. So, And he had a pretty good turn himself. Yeah, his turn one was pretty pretty good if I can remember, but... It, yeah, it was pretty serious. Not good enough. <laughs> I got the Yogg Will and just went went to town. And then game three was extremely epic. I he went first. He played a land and passed. Tropical Island. I played. Well, I opened my hand up and it had. Uh, I had Time Bolt and Key. And Soul Ring. And Soul Ring, but I only had one land. Mm. So and I had a Gush. And, so a, pre- I, and, a, and a Preordain, and I was like, well, I need a Preordain and catch a land. And then I could probably get this time ball key off pretty quick. Probably turn three. Why didn't you lead with Soul Ring? I was really afraid if I led with Soul Ring that it would get mental misstep and then I'd be completely blown out. Right. And what happened? And so instead I led with Ponder. I mean Preordain. Yeah. I led with Preordain. I had Ponder as well. Maybe I drew that in the, in the second turn. I think, I think you, drew, you, drew, I drew you drew Ponder next turn. Yeah. So I, and he mental missed up the preordain, and then he tinkered for Blightsteel on his next turn and passed, and I was like, well, this is pretty bad. <laughs> I drew my card, and it was Ponder, and I was like, well, okay. It wasn't a it wasn't land, a land yeah. which is what I, I really needed a land so that I could gush, at least, to keep digging. And so I Ponder, and I saw a fetch land and two useless cards. And I actually made a mistake at that point because I looked at the Ponder, and I have this major annoyance with Ponder that <laughs> a lot of times you want to gush, but you know what the next two cards are. Like, you you want to take one of the cards, and then you want to gush, but I know the next two cards are blanks, and I'm like, stupid Ponder. Uh-huh. You know, and I actually forgot the fact that I would actually just be able to take the fetch land, play it, and it would shuffle, and I'd be able to see two fresh cards when I gush. So what I ended up doing was, like, Shuffle my ponder, and I handed the deck to Rich, and he shuffled it up, cut it. I drew the top card, and it was a gift. Black Lotus. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Pretty amazing. I was and watching Bulver Paul's shoulder. And I, had and to I was able to time ball PM. <laughs> I, was able, I had to bite my tongue hard. When you so you were Lotus. facing Blightsteel, and you top-decked the, the I top-decked the Lotus after I pondered into mostly useless cards. But yeah. You could have maybe gushed if you had had the land. If I had taken that land, yeah. I could have gushed and seen two cards instead of one, which would have definitely had my need, chance of finding the Black Lotus. Uh, or, 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 no, you he needed just any mana source. He well, I needed, I needed more than that yeah, because he has to play soul ring. I have to play the Soul Ring. Still. You needed two additional mana. Then. And I was actually kind of concerned that he might have had a second me- mental misstep because he had so quickly thrown out his first mental misstep to take my preordain, mm-hmm. but... I was pretty sure he just wanted to tempo me. Right. Because he was about he was to Blightsteel. He was about the Blightsteel, and he was like, I'm going to just give him the fewest options to find his outs as possible, which I don't completely disagree with. Yeah. But if he had <laughs> had... very Paul Mastriano play. If he had <laughs> had the mental misstep later in the game, I would have never been able to beat him. Right. Fascinating. So, a very I mean, epic not, match with Rich. It sounds like an anticlimactic conclusion. I mean, in a sense, very dramatic. Very, very dramatic. dramatic Blightsteel plus... But the game wasn't yeah. sort of developed in the way that I think we would hope and right. expect it. And I didn't get to see the other two matchups, but I know that Mark beat Nick Koss and uh, so Dredge beat minus six Dragon and the uh, the shop deck Ryan Glacken was piloting beat Joe, Joe Brown's, Brown's painter, painter deck. deck. He ran so over. there was kind of some 
Some bad pairings for the people that lost there in Odyssey. So it was pretty Paul, bad pairings for them. Paul and Steve, unfortunately, were in the same bracket, so they were matched up next. And in the other half of the bracket was Dredge versus Cat Stacks, which was a blowout for Dredge. I didn't get to watch that, but it was over fast. But Paul and Steve was not over fast. It was a very epic matchup. Yeah, we get to take a bathroom break after game two. <laughs> <laughs> so we played in the Swiss, so we'd already faced. And we knew that this, the stakes were totally different. When I mean, we, we were very disappointed to have to face each other in the Swiss. Right. Because we were both... You were XO at the time. X5-0. We were both XO. We were yeah. both, was we were, it 5-0 or 4-0? We were, uh, it was 4-0. I agree we were both 4-0. 4-0. Yeah. We, we wanted to face each other the next round because then we were more likely to draw. Yeah. Because then we, then we would only need one more win at the next two rounds. Right. So we had to... So we had... We faced each other. And then when we got to the top four, we were like... We were Steve very, won our first matchup. We were very... Swiss. 2-0. And we were very excited... To both be in the top eight because we were playing the same deck, but we were very disappointed to be in the same bracket. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely like to have seen you at the end. That would be pretty awesome. <laughs> but uh, yeah, those matches were pretty intense. It went on for about two hours. I think. What was our, your What was your recollection of our match? I remember the the first one was definitely defined by dark confidants. Yeah. We both had dark dark confidants going. Double dark confidants. Yeah, I think we both had two symmetrical. At the end. I think I had Ruby, you had Ruby. We just kept playing the same it. cards. It was pretty interesting. It was a mirror for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it ultimately came down to the cards that came off of dark confidants. Yeah, I think there there are a couple things I remember of game one. One, I think it was game one. In in my sort of gush book and in my gush theorizing, there are certain ways you play gush. I remember you played Gush. Now I'm thinking of a, po- a I think game two. You played Gush and I responded with Gush. But you played Gush on turn two with no. So you you'd already played your land and you gushed, which is sort of like a weird thing to do. And you put me in an awkward spot because I had a red blast, and I basically really worked through the scenario. And I realized if I, I it was totally against my instinct to gush to gush in response. But the way it plays out, I have to to keep up with the card advantage and keep the things sort of balanced. And I remember you game two. So yeah, game two, the one that you won, I remember was definitely defined by the fact that I, you saw two spell pierces off of Dark Confidant, and I sat there for like the entire rest of the game trying to figure out how I was going to be able to get through those spell pierces because it was a little bit short on mana to really resolve anything. I had a lot of good answers. I had like one red blast and one spell pierce of my own, which was mostly useless because you had a ton of mana. And I mean, those spell pierces pretty much held me down the entire game. In game three. In game two. Yeah. And game three, I got Tinker for the Blight Steel, and uh, and you're like, do you have the Force of Will? And I lied, and I said no. <laughs> <laughs> and you did all you did your thing. You, you were able to get it to Demonic Tutor, and Herkel. and play the Hercules, and I had the Force of Will, and I think you you have a Spell Pierce in your hand. I have Spell Pierce, but you didn't have any extra mana. Right. And so I had top, and so I topped and tried to get lucky with force, and I didn't see it. Wasn't able to see it. Yeah. So here's here's what I remember. Right. I mean, you just tap the top to draw. Right. The first game was really strange because one of my weakest areas of magic is combat, and so what we were essentially getting into these really strange situations where we both have two bobs, or like we'll trade a bob and we both played a second bob. I think we both played three bobs that game. That's right. You <laughs> traded once and both played a replacement, <laughs> which is uh, just utterly bizarre. Um, and so we got in the situation where where these decision trees were. Do you attack with, with one or both bobs? Do you block with a bob? And should do you play an additional bob? 
And those, those decisions kept recurring every time. And they become these incredible branching trees where it's like all these decisions sort of like, the decisions sort of compound each other because, mm -hmm. and then, and, and I, don't, I wasn't really navigating that very well. I didn't feel like I had a clear sense of what to do at all. You know, do I block, do I draw? And I, and I, I was trying to like think through what might happen, who has card advantage, but it's also trying to intuit, like what do I feel is the right play here? And ultimately, you somehow got a little bit. I think there was like the. Set. I definitely made more attacks on you. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that might have really made the difference in the end. There was, I think, the, the penultimate bob flip. You went like like a one and a blank, mm -hmm. and then I hit like a three and a one or a two. You definitely hit a five. And, at no, the but end. The, the, I said the penultimate. <laughs> right, the, right. The last one I hit five and one and two yeah. and died. But I. But what happens was we were pretty even, and then I hit like more mana heavy, and then you hit you. We went clean. And then the final one I saw, I flipped fours. Well, what I was trying to do at the beginning of that game was trying to get you under to 12 or less. Mm, so I could blightsteal. <laughs> so that there was a possibility you could just hit blightsteal and Wasn't blightsteal in my hand? It was. Well, it late, wasn't. It was late in the game, it was. Yeah. Well, you would, you, you yog-willed and you gushed after you tutored for Tinker, I believe. And the blightsteal was, was right underneath it. It was in game one, for sure. Oh, oh, that's right, it was. Yeah, that was in game one. Yeah, so I, I, yeah that's right. I, I yog-willed and I... And your entire line of play went to hell whenever the... Yeah. yeah. You got, he really drew cool. the tinker and the blood steel. And, and, and it's, it's really frustrating when there's only one possible thing that can go wrong. And it's, what, what I remember distinctly about game two were, were a couple things. But most important is, is that I was in a total control role. Totally control. And, yeah. and, and I was held down by it the whole time. I could feel it. <laughs> but what's, what's crazy is that, that I... So, so I... In our match with Paul... One of my match with Paul, and, and he did the same thing to me. We weren't just playing good decks. We were actually playing each other. Because right. we've known each other for ten years, <laughs> like, and the thing is, when I was playing Paul, I know how Paul likes to play vintage. He likes to play vintage very aggressively. You know, I remember we used to play combo. I mean, Paul comes from the combo school, not the Wiseman school. Absolutely. And and and, 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 and so my first very competitive vintage deck was Illusions Donate, the Kaibu deck, which was all draw sevens, yeah. and that he played at the at the Invitational, two thousand one Invitational. And so I know how Paul plays. And I know being in the – this is the thing about being in the, the combo role. You remember how I used to play Grimlong? And, like, and Kevin, you might have said this. We played Grimlong, and I would actually sort of announce the possible lines of play. Mm -hmm. And, like, if you, we would play tests like Psychotog versus and, – and it would be like, well, if you do this and I have this. And you actually say that's sort of intimidating because I'm actually puzzling out every single possibility and taking the line of play where you have no shot. Yeah. And what, but the, the problem with that is that if your opponent actually has more control cards or can control the situation, then there is a possibility for them to win. And I was in the, and so what I really wanted Paul to do was walk into my control, because I had like force, spell pierce, spell pierce, pyroblast, click, and like another control card, maybe even a second force. And in that situation, I know Paul likes to play aggressively, so I just wanted to make him feel like he could could have pulled it off. I wanted to feel like he has enough, because he kept doing like search stuff, like you were playing like preordains and. You, know, you were searching. I was digging, and I, I I knew he was trying to set up the, the nuts. And and so when I actually clicked him, he's like, "You're gonna like this." And his <laughs> hand was really really nutty. Except I had him like not just a counterspell above, but like two counterspells ahead. And so like I kind of wanted to make it feel like, oh god, but he never, you know, to get him to feel comfortable going off. Then I, I knew when you clicked me though, I figured you would probably take my Voltaic key. Yeah. And I was actually pretty upset because the previous turn I preordained. And I saw a card in Time Vault, and I put them both on the bottom, and then drew key. Uh -huh. And I was like, man, I, I know he's going to take... When you did the click, I was like, I know he's probably going to take my key, because it's very dangerous. Well, your hand was like... Your hand, tinker. Yeah, Tinker, mm -hmm. Spell Pierce, Red Elemental Blast, um, Voltaic Key, and... 
You had seven cards in your hand. I had pretty much a full grab. You had, you had a Scalding Tarn was your land, and I think you had one. You probably wrote it down somewhere. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I figured you'd probably take the key, and I was like, he's going to probably take my key. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> and I was right, and I and I knew, yeah, you know, I was like, uh, time vaults on the bottom of my deck. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there are two things I learned on the day that it made me that decision. My, my only match loss prior to that was Nick Koss. And against Nick Koss, I beat him game one. In game two, he um, he assembled the key vault. In game three, he assembled key vault, both on turn one, or t- turn two, or turn three. And the key decision in, in game, he actually had a one land hand in game three. And the only reason he vamped, for, he Imperial Sealed for Lotus, which I didn't know. He played Imperial Seal. And my hand had like Force, Key, a uh, Force, Click, um, Bob, Reb. Reb. And I was sitting there, Reb, and I basically just had to decide do I play Bob with Reb up? Was that right? Do I, no, no. Do I play Bob with Reb up or do I play Click? Yeah. And I decided to play Bob with Reb up. Reb up. And you should have definitely clicked, huh? I definitely should have clicked. And so, like, over the course of the day, I realized when it comes up, when it comes to playing Click or Bob, you play click. And the other thing is, do not give yourself, your opponent, an out. And I was like, I really, 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 really do not want to take that key. Because it's such a low probability event. Mm-hmm. But I felt almost forced to, because I was like, this is game two. I lost game one. If I was up game one, I might have actually let you have it. I might have taken the... Tinker. 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 Yeah. If I, was up, if I was up a game, I probably would have taken the tinker. But I was like, I cannot allow a possibility of losing here, given the power of my hand. Which was, like, you didn't even realize I had the red blast. And I, I mean, you, didn't, you just had no idea how controlling my hand was. Yeah. And I was like, and I really wanted you to walk into it because I know how aggressive you are. And I was like, if I can play, because if, if you can play the control role and actually maintain control, it's just a blowout mm-hmm. when they walk into it. Because, and then I drew Yawgmust Wheel. And when you were tapped down, I felt, I have to go for it. I just have to go for it here. I'm compelled. I have this insane control hand, but I might, even as, as good as this hand is, I, I have so much card advantage to be gained from going off here. The thing is, I was constrained. I had like 12 life. I, I had the fast bond, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Was it the fast bond I drew? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I have to yeah. go off. I was yeah. holding the will. Yeah. I was pretty sure you had me at that point. Yeah, but I, I really had to work for it. And that's yeah. when I when I gushed into the, the Blightsteel. And I was like, oh, my God, I gushed into Blightsteel. I'm, I, and, and what really was frustrating, what was actually most frustrating about gushing into Blightsteel was that I had spent my Red Blast. I spent the Red Blast on your Spell Pierce when I really wanted you to. You didn't really need to. Here's what you right. I could have spell pierced or spell pierced, but here's why I didn't. I needed to. I did it that way because there was a reason. I felt pretty good that my spell pierce hit the reb. Yes, I was very upset to have to do that because I was like, well, well I didn't even know if I, I really wanted to play that spell pierce there. Yeah, I felt pretty good that it did it. Like it took away one of your cards. Right. Mm-hmm. I, well, that's right. I gushed. I had the gush in my hand. I gushed. I replayed the the land, and I had the three mana for Yawgmoth's Will. As between the Pyroblast and the Spell Pierce, I felt compelled to go with the Pyroblast because, no, because if I played Spell Pierce, you could have revved my Spell Pierce. That's why. Mm-hmm. You had the Red Blast in your hand. And so oh, if, I had two mana up. Right, you I had did, two yeah. mana up. And so if I Spell Pierced or Spell Pierce, you would have revved it. I would have had to Spell Pierce again. I would have only had two mana. I would not have been able to play Yawgmoth's Will. <laughs> so I had to do it that way. I was so frustrated. Like At that point, I was actually like, Maybe I should just give him the turn. Let him, you know. I still. I had, think that would have been a big mistake. I still had all the control cards. I don't. I mean, I still felt like he would have had to rip because I still would have had the rev, the spell pierce, and the. And I was looking at all your mana, and I was like, "Here's what's going to happen." He has this. Oh, he has merchant scroll too. That was the other card you had in your hand. Mm-hmm. I was thinking every single permutation. He could scroll for the ancestral. He could scroll for force of will if he draws a blue spell. You know, I was thinking everything. I still had control because I could. The only the, the key thing is I can spell pierce, force, pitching a blue spell. 
and Pyroblast. And you had, I think, like, you had Sol Ring, Mox, Land, 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 and the, and the Scalding Tarn. I think that was it. I was like, this is still going to work out for me, but it's much tighter. Much yes. tighter. So I was like, I have to go for it now. Because it's also possible you could have just slipped in the control role. You know, and then when do I get Yawgmoth's Well, Then we're both top decking. Right, very true. And so I felt like I had to go for it. It was so close. And when I topped that, that thing, I was like, oh, my God, I've got to click. I've got to win with this click because I have nothing else. I can't play a Bob. I'm at one or two, two life. And then when, when I eventually got to the point where you were at three life, I had nothing because we actually had a counter war when I countered your, your Tinker. I had Mystical Tutor, and I had one Red Blast left in my deck. I remember you tutored for that Red Blast. I had Mystical Tutor for Red Blast. It was the last thing. I, I didn't have any. I had Force of Will in my deck, but I only had four mana up. So mm -hmm. I couldn't actually cast Force of Will. Nor could I. And I had the Blightsteel in my hand. Nor could, There were so few options. Spell Pierce wouldn't get there. I could get Ancestral or Brainstorm. But again, it all comes back down to the Pyro. You took a turn. You didn't draw what you needed. What did you draw that turn? <laughs> Blightsteel. <laughs> oh, that's right. You guys both ended the game with Blightsteel in here. <laughs> and I had the Pyro. Yeah, I the ultimate brick. <laughs> wow. So I didn't even need the Pyro mm -hmm. for the Tinker. Uh, and game three was defined by you vamping for... Well, game three, I had Fast Bond. And I was like, this hand is nuts. I had Fast Bond, Demonic Tutor, um, Ponder, and Top, and like two lands, and, t and Time Walk. And I was like, oh, this is going to be insane. And like I pondered in, in, in top and didn't see a gush, and I was like, damn. <laughs> and if I did, and, you know, and but you you, in, uh, you when you vamped, I was like, yeah, of course he's gonna vamp, you know, and <laughs> vamp for Tinker, and um, basically you're like, are you getting Tinker? And I was like, I just started to think, uh, <laughs> like maybe I was like second, like maybe I yes, shouldn't. That was my that's what was my goal. <laughs> but I was like, I was like, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely gonna get Tinker. No, and I was like, and I was that's like, what you said. You I was said, like, no, I'm getting something better or something like that. No, what, what you said was funny. You said, "Oh, I didn't even think about that." <laughs> <laughs> and to be honest, it actually did that unnerved me when you said that because you made me second guess. Whoa, what, you know, because you what that did was it pushed me out of my game, my psychological game. By, by that response, that's actually the worst part of the match is you really pushed me out of my psychological game because you know me so well, and like I'm used to having my persona at the board. Right. Kevin and I had played played Magic in five years because you went to Texas. Right. And when you came back, what was funny, Paul, if we wouldn't play Magic, let's say we both went on hiatus for like five years and we played each other, we would notice things about each other. We'd come right back. Mm -hmm. It's funny. Like when Kevin and I played, I was like, man, it's all coming back to me, how you play cards, how you touch the cards. What do you What do you remember about that? Like what was it? It's, it's totally – it's like it's like how Scent is your most powerful memory jogger. Yeah. Playing Magic against someone jogs all kinds of memories, just like you said, just about how they manipulate their body language, how they manipulate the cards – how they shuffle their hand, how they announce spells. Paul has this amazing style for announcing spells. Right. And how, <laughs> regardless of what's in his hand, right. and his opponent announces a spell, he tanks for a second and then says, I'll allow it. Right. <laughs> Paul would say that if he had no cards in his hand. <laughs> so, yes. Momo is the boss. <laughs> and, I'm, a, I'm a control deck. And, and Paul and, and so you know, and Paul and I know each other very well. So I was, you know, I was playing to him. I was playing to. I know he's an aggressive player. I know he want, likes to make these kinds of decisions. And but we also have the psychological game. And his responses actually pushed me out of my psychological game a little bit. You know, which is weird. Like when he said, "Oh, I hadn't thought about that." I was like, "Could Paul really have not thought about that?" Like I was actually thinking, was and, and I actually spent mental energy thinking about this. I was like. Was he really going to vamp for Ancestral there? Like that, that actually, and I was like, and that, that made me quieter, which is not 
me. <laughs> <laughs> but when I do that though, Kevin, when I go when I go think about each play and then say I'll allow it though, yeah. I really do actually sit there and try to contemplate like what does this play mean for my opponent? Mm-hmm. What kind of line of play are they trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. What are their goals? Even if I'm not actually contemplating whether or not I'm going to counter the stall, sure. whether or not I have anything, mm-hmm. I like to try to think, you know, like what does what does this play mean? Mm-hmm. What is what is the motivation behind it? What do I think is actually happening? What's, what's their plan? What's their plan? It sounds perfect to me. You get the time you need to consider everything, and also you get a little bit of a psychological advantage, at least right, against exactly. the players who are susceptible right. to it, and it's just it's great. I think you should always do it. Yeah. I mean, I think you really want to always consider each play, though. You need yeah. to think about what each play actually right. does mean because, you know, people are following their own lines of play. Yeah. And if you can kind of understand what their line of play is, then you can figure out what the counter strategy is. How do I attack right. that line? How do I beat it? Another thing I learned on the day was if I had the option of playing Time Walk or Bob, I I'm, I'm, go Time Walk. Time I play walk. I play Bob against game two against Nikos and I lost. Mm. If I played Time Walk, I would have had a lot more outs. But and so that what actually happened was when I played Fast Bond, I had Time Walk and Bob and DT. I played I played Time Walk and then Bob, I think. But in any case, um, I played Bob and I actually had one out at the end of that game. I I pondered. I was was well, I topped and I you saw, topped. I topped and I saw preordain. Well, I had Bob in play and he and Paul had just fan for. And tinker and played the Colossus, mm-hmm. um, and I my I, pon- I topped and I saw, I it w- no I, I actually had to ponder because I got two of the cards in my hand. I saw Spell Pierce, Vendillion Click, and Preordain, and I put the uh, no it was top because I flipped them with Bob. That's right. I I, uh, I put the uh, Spell Pierce on top, which was revealed, and then I drew the Click, and what I could have done, and I had DT in in my hand and just four mana. That's it, and I was really really hoping to find a gush. And there were a number of options. I could top and try and find gush. I could top and draw, you know, and and preordain and try and find gush. And I would have ma- extra mana to spell Pierce that, with the Hercules Recall protection. And my initial thought was, I can click him, and I can b- double block your Blightsteel. And I thought that's not going to work because he has force. And I realized, no, it will work because I have spell Pierce. <laughs> and then I, for some reason, I was thinking, he might not have force. So I said, yeah. I said, even before I made any of these plays, I said, well. I got the Hercules. I said, do you have the force? And you said, ah, and you looked concerned, and you actually fooled me. Oh, yeah? You did. Because, I, I mean, I, I knew you really well, and that's actually, like, you know, we played so much Magic. Together, like, probably more than anyone, you know, that I know of. But maybe Kevin would be the only exception. You know, and so I know what happens when I really got you over the barrel. <laughs> you made, you mimicked yourself to the T. To the and so it, I had actually known that you had the force, but I'd forgotten and you had the force because when I played turn one fast pawn, you really tanked in a way that made me. I felt like you had the force. Like I was pretty sure you had force. I did have it, and you, I realized <laughs> it. And, and it's sort of like the the mirror of the. And as an aggressive player, I was thinking that unless you did anything that was really bad, I right. really wanted to save the force to back up Tinker. Yes, you were on the plan exactly. And what was funny is that I was trying to bank on you. I really wanted you to counter the fast pawn, kind of, because <laughs> I didn't have a gush in my hand. But I was really playing it up. Like, this hand is nuts. And I was trying to build on your experience in the Swiss, where I had my opening hand was gush, 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 pyroblast, fast bond, and two lands. <laughs> I wanted you to be afraid of it. Right. Really bad. And you didn't. You didn't go for the bait. And so when you had that force, but I'd forgotten that. Like, you know, I was in the moment. And, I mean, I think my play was fine, but the, 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 the thing that I think about now is if I click with spell peers, and the click resolves, then I can take a red on the blaster, time walk, whatever you might have in hand. You still have outs, 
Right. <clears throat> if you had clicked me, I would have forced it. Right, and then I would have spelled it. And then pierced. you would have had spelled it cleared the way then. But you still get two draws, right. which is you have plenty of opportunity to win. I mean, I made the, the worst play, but you did. You definitely pushed me out of my game, and your response to my question about about Hercules made me confident that I could resolve the Hercules, so I didn't spend mental energy thinking about the alternative. How to how to back it up? Yes, that's what I wanted, and you got it. Yeah. This is a very good lesson for those wanting to play at a high level in vintage events. That this format turns on a dime, and everything <laughs> is so close. The interactions are so tight that the psychological game has powerful influences. And you sacrificed what could have been a game-winning line of play. It could have been right. a game-winning line of play because of your perception, which is incredible. All right, so Paul, tell us about how the finals went. Well, when I sat down against Mark, me and Mark have played a number of times. He's a pretty familiar Blue Bell player. He's a big fan of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had played a number of times. I knew what deck he was on. Matt Elias had played a very similar deck against me at uh, the last Blue Bell tournament, and he beat me pretty good. Talk about the noteworthy components of that particular dredge list. Uh, well, there's Bait Stitchers. There's Sun Titans, multiple Sun Titans, which what they do with that is... You can dread return the Sun Titan, which will ret either return to play Bizarre Baghdad, mm -hmm. which is incredibly explosive. Like when you're playing a regular dredge deck, if you have the double Bizarre draw, you can almost always win very, very quickly. Yeah. Mm. So Bait Stitcher essentially lets you have a double Bizarre draw a lot because they're playing with four mana sources, right? Lotus, LED, Sapphire, Petal, is that and right? the full lands. There's and, City and, of Brass and, and Underground. Six to eight lands. Depending on the list you're talking about, right? Right, right yeah. And I actually kind of think that's a very much better list. And when Matt Elias played against me, I was like, ah, fast. That's a pretty good list, and I like the fact that it played with powerful cards. Like mm -hmm. a lot of you know, previous dredge decks all, you know, didn't play with cards like Ancestral Recall and Black Lotus and things like that. And I was like, now here's a dredge deck that's yeah, it's playing with some powerful stuff in addition to the very powerful suite of dredge cards that are always in there. So this is the dredge list that we've been talking about on the show for mm -hmm. the last couple of weeks. One of the things Paul's been telling me for so long is that like dredge has to deal with an environment where blight still exists. <laughs> it's such a like he was kept saying like you keep telling me like the format sped up a little bit. It did, and dredge had to s somehow sink or swim. And dredge kind of got caught behind for a while, and this new version definitely kind of found a way out of that problem that they had before is it was very fast itself so it could actually compete in that speed it had to speed itself up and the way they did that was by adding a number of dread return targets in fate stitcher mm -hmm. more reliable more fast so how did the finals go well he had sun oath yeah sun titan sun titan yeah. yeah right and when i played matt elias i actually had the Yixla, i had four yixla jailers on my sideboard <laughs> and they i think a little spell bomb and a pithing needle and his sideboard just annihilated my Yixla Jailers. <laughs> it was like not not even fair at all. And it made me really respect the Dredge deck. And I was like, man, I definitely need to switch to Ley Lines, even though I was playing Dark Confidants. And I felt like I didn't want to play Ley Lines because they cost four mana. Mm -hmm. But I was, I was like saying, we got to play But Ley I was like, man, we have to play Ley Lines. Yeah. Like, because Ley Lines is the absolute best card to yeah. beat Dredge. Mm -hmm. It's the one that... You know, it starts in play, they don't get a graveyard ever. <laughs> and if you can back it up with any kind of counter magic, 
then you know their bunch of cards they boarded in to beat it are irrelevant. So, I mean, the plan against Dredge, I, th I think the old plan in a lot of ways was to try to get two pieces out because they played so very few cards to actually remove the hate, but not anymore. They play all the lands now, mm -hmm. so they reliably get their land drop. Mm -hmm. They reliably get a one-mana card that trades one for one with your Dredge hate, and they reliably beat your face in after that. <laughs> so, you know, you really have to be ready with some counter magic. Mm-hmm. To back up your stuff. I noticed that in your post-sideboard games. In both your post-sideboard games, you had multiple hate cards by the second turn. And in both cases, you needed was... counter magic to defend those hate cards. Yes. And, well, the finals went like this pretty much. Game one was typical game one for Dredge. <laughs> I think I'm all into five looking for any kind of powerful hand. Mm -hmm. And... I settled on one that wasn't very good, but it had Black Lotus and Mock Sapphire. So I felt like there was a possibility that I could actually draw into something that would be good. And I didn't feel like going to four or any lower would give me a chance to draw the... You need a very, very nuts draw to beat Dredge in game one. Like, it has to be absolutely bonkers. What is your plan in that game? I just try to try to mulligan, look for something that's at all competitive. Right, but how are you trying to end the game? Do you think Key Vault is your goal in that case, in right. that matchup? Whatever I can get. I think that actually... <laughs> Fast bond is probably the best. Yeah, it is. Yeah. If you can get fast bond and, and go start gushing, then you're most likely to be able to win very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, either that or get ticker time walk. Yeah. I kept, I was on the the um, coverage, you know, in the games booth, and I kept saying Paul's probably going to look for like a turn one or two blight seal, like tinker. Like you can get tinker or like a very quick yog will into tinker, <laughs> yeah. or or some, get lucky and assemble the time vault combo. But, but yeah, I think the ultimate would be to find fast bond. Yeah, fast bond with like at least one gush, and then mm -hmm. fast bond is even hope nut, to go out your uh, post board because you can archive play lines pretty easily. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, ultimately, my hand wasn't good enough, and Mark rolled me as Dredge often does in game one. So we go to the post board games, and game two was actually really interesting because oh, I kept he the hand. The, he mulliganed the five in game one. I wondered how you feel felt as he kept mulliganing. I mean, he serum powdered mulligan, serum powdered mulligan. Were you getting excited when he mulliganed to four, five? Were you thinking five is not really enough for me to get excited yeah. of a mulligan? He actually, I've seen him win mulliganing to one before. So, <laughs> you know, as a as a dredge player, you you cannot give up on your mulligan. You just you just keep doing it. So you it. go to one if you're a dredge player. Yes, I think yeah. you do. Unless I, I can't think of the reason why you would keep the two. What if it was in? What if it's ancestral? Uh, land, probably. Land Ancestral, I guess I would keep that, probably. I mean, <laughs> I can't imagine that the one would probably be better. Right. Unless maybe I had Serum Powder a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one time someone mulliganed to Serum Powder, and they removed the Serum Powder, and it was bizarre. <laughs> 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 so, so game two. Game two, I had Leyline and Pithing Needle, and my only mana source was Mox Ruby. And he had but Bizarre... You on the play. Right. right. He had Bizarre, but he couldn't find a mana source to play his removal cards. He went draw discard for And I think I had a seven, force of will, too. He went draw discard for about seven turns. Well, so did I. And we <laughs> both went back and forth. Draw discard, draw discard, draw, dis draw, 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 draw. We both Who's like, getting the land? Draw, go, draw, go. And I, I finally topped back Mox Sapphire. And when I talked like Mox Sapphire, I was like, it was me. <laughs> <laughs> and then I started going. I think I had a spell pierce by that time. I felt pretty good once I yeah. did the Mox Sapphire. I was like, we're there. 
We made it. He, he, was, he was never really in that game. Yeah, he was totally out of that game. He was so point. dead. Like, yeah. at turn after turn, I was like, man, there's a Serum Pad, there's a Narco Amoeba. It was pretty bad. Dark Blast. He's all, all Blacks. Yeah, just, just all Blacks. Then game three, epic. I had... Epic. I had Leyline and Pithing Needle. It was yeah. one of the best, like... I think I mowed the five games game. of all time. Did like, you have the needle or did you tutor for it? No, I top decked the needle on my first turn. Oh, wow. <laughs> I definitely kept on having Leyline. Uh-huh. So I didn't think I was going to get any better than that. What else was in that hand? Vamp? I think Vamp was in there, yeah. I can't remember entirely. I had to think about it for a while. But he went and he played his Bizarre. I, pithing, I played Pithing Needle. He responded with Bizarre. And on the following turn, I Vamped for Tinker. And I got to Tinker. Well, hold on. On his turn, though, he played on Undiscovered Paradise and Nature's Claim. Yeah, he Nature's he Claim by Ley Lines. Yeah. You were... Right I, away. I was in trouble. Yeah. You know what? I, in the comment booth, I was like, oh, my goodness. He has... You had Needle and Ley Line, and, it's, you know, I was like, Paul is going to be the Venice champ. <laughs> yeah. Well, I felt very confident when I drew the Pithing Needle. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, excellent. And he top-decked that Undiscovered Paradise, and then he top-decked... The and then, well, then claim. I got the, uh, yeah, Nature's he Claim, my land. The Nature's Claim. No, no, he had two Nature's Claims in his opening oh, hand. Okay. He didn't have yeah. the land, though. The land. He didn't have the land. Right, right. He was sitting on a bazaar, and you had Pithy Needle. I was like, oh, my goodness. He's yeah. got nothing. That's yeah. right. He was toast without drawing that mana. I spell. thought I was in a very strong position. And yeah. I got, so I went and got my Tinker, and I Tinkered out Blight Steel, and I passed, and he top-decked the Chain of Vapor. Mm. <laughs> mm. Bounced my Blight Steel. But it wasn't over yet. No, it wasn't over yet. I still had the Pithy Needle in play, too. Yeah. Which he removed on his next turn. With nature's claim. <laughs> With yeah, nature's number two. claim. And I was like, oh, now I'm in trouble. So he, he got, was able to do He got a, a one dredge. dredge there. Right. Well, he didn't get to actually dredge. He got to bizarre. He got to bizarre. And dump some cards. Yeah. Which actually, in the Fate Stitcher version, pretty dangerous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although I do think that, like, they take a lot of their, the bite out in the post-board games to get all that stuff in. Yeah. So it's it, a little bit slower. What was most important about his first bizarre activation that mattered was that the it last was, card it revealed was Ancient Grudge. Yeah. The well, no, no. That, well, that, that didn't happen until it was draw step. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Because I got one. to, I got Mystical Tutor, and I Mystical Tutored for Yawgma's Will so that I could replay uh, Mox Pearl, which I had sacrificed to Tinker, and then replay my Pithing Needle. And in that case, and I actually kind of, I noticed that I didn't have another black mana to play the Vampiric Tutor in my graveyard I only had blue mana available and I passed the turn and I forgot the mystical tutor because I had set it far aside when I played it for some reason and I didn't notice it in my graveyard and I noticed it during his next turn mm-hmm. which I was like oh missed the mystical tutor and it was definitely worse when he got he couldn't use his bizarre Baghdad but he was able to dredge because he had dumped a guard grave troll into the yard on that first bizarre activation that's where the ancient grudge so he hit his draw step dredge and it turned over ancient grudge and then he just blew away my pithing needle like it was nothing. <laughs> and went to town. He was able to make a bunch of zombies and reanimate Golgari Grave Troll, which yeah. was enough to kill me on the following turn. And I just drew dead. And I was I was out of it. So I could have drawn Ancestral Recall there if I'd replayed the, the, mystical. the mystical Tutor, which, right. I mean, it maybe was a long shot, but there's a lot of powerful yeah. cards in my deck. So there's... I mean, I could have found. I could have at least found. A, I could have at least found a gush, maybe, yeah. to keep going. You hadn't spent time walk yet either. 
I hadn't spent a lot of good you cards. Time block yet? You still have time block key in your com in your deck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Simple. seeing three cards. Actually, I would see. If you saw Lotus Leyline, yeah, I would see three well, cards. You might not have gotten there with that just that, but maybe no, no, Lotus Leyline would have done yeah. it because he already had an army as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. His army was ready to go. It was too late. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Leyline's time had passed. So that game yeah, three really. was epic. To summarize, he fought through turn zero Leyline, turn one Needle. Turn two Colossus. Turn three Needle. <laughs> he dropped through those four he cards. Got all of those cards in <laughs> with a total of four mana spent. <laughs> he fought through those four cards and then just two activations. Really, well, a total of three activations of Bizarre won him that game basically effectively. Yeah. The first one dumped a couple of cards, including a Dredger. He got a draw step, and then he got one more after his flash. I think it was two Dredgers and yeah. and uh, Bridge from Below. I'm still yeah. in the wake. You know, it's the wake of the event. It's hard to sort of step outside of it mm-hmm. and think about what actually happened. Like, it's it's still so, like, fresh. Yeah. You know, Dredge won that thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a testament to that deck, and it's a yeah. testament to the hit. I mean, Mark is an excellent Dredge player. Yeah, he knew I what mean, he was doing. You, I think a lot of times the problem with Dredge is that your hands are very random, mm-hmm. and you have to play out what Dredge gives you. Yeah. But ultimately, the way the deck is constructed... Once you remove the hate, it's extremely consistent. Yeah. Just so um, extremely consistent. It's like, I mean, you could definitely win if you mulligan to one and your hit card is bizarre. It seems like, <laughs> oh, without question. It's like the rest of the cards don't even matter. They're blind. As long as you hit a dredge, dredger soon. Yeah. Like, I think, like, maybe I could be wrong, but it seems to me one of the major skills with dredge is. Sideboarding. Well, yeah. not just knowing what to take board. out, exactly. understanding Precisely. what the other deck is going to be bringing in, having a having a read on the. You person. have to read your opponent well. You have to know the metagame real well. You have to be basically scouting, like so you know what your opponent's playing and, and mm-hmm. understand what they're going to try and go for. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure Mark actually sided out his uh, cards to beat Yixla Jailer for game three. He did. Because he was he pretty changed. sure I didn't have Post it. two and three, he changed. So yeah. he made the right decision there. Yeah. And I definitely think it probably. He he boosted up his deck a little bit, made mm-hmm. it more dangerous, so that he was able to win in that clutch moment. Fascinating story. I mean, th- this is going to have ripples for a while in terms of the environment. The top eight was an incredible selection of decks. It was os- the diversity ostensibly six blue decks, but aside from the similarities between your two, they're very close, of course. Seventy cards are so <laughs> similar. The other it was a perfect the representation other, of the field. The, the other six decks deck, were deck. very different. Yeah, there were Tarmogoyfs in the top eight. There was Dragon. If you want to say Painter. like what is the Vinged metagame, look at the Vinged top eight. Right. I mean, it's almost like a picture perfect copy, a Xerox of the field. Right? Yeah. I mean, there was Oath, which didn't make the top eight, yeah. but that was really the the only deck I think that was played in a significant number that wasn't there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I saw in round one a, a Dredge Mirror. Marlon Moore was playing the Dredge Mirror. I was like, do you have any hate? Nope, neither one's have any hate. They both assemble these armies. <laughs> I was like, oh, That's a pretty awful mirror match. <laughs> so we didn't have Elish Norn. <laughs> no, apparently not. That's a win. Elish Norn seems to be insane in the Dredge Mirror, yeah. I think. 
Well, maybe the results of this tournament will cause a couple of dredge players to throw some Elish Norn in their sideboard. <laughs> I think at it. Did he? <laughs> he was super prepared, huh? That's incredible. <laughs> he knew what to do. I mean, I, I he had been talking about it for a while. He's like, I need to foil Elish Norn for my deck. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, it destroys the dredge mirror. <laughs> I can totally yeah. see that. Like, your army is gone. Mine's ginormous. <laughs> Mark's top deck is certainly one of the most epic. I was in the boots. I didn't hear were people screaming like when they top deck that chain. Well, no, because but, it was in the middle of the match. Right. <laughs> Nobody's gonna say anything. That's the kind anything. of thing where you just hear like, the, the whoa, whole, the whole crowd. God. Yeah, yeah, the whole crowd. There was a shifting of body language <laughs> for the people that were sitting behind but, him. And as amazing as that was, I think that goes to show you that when you're a really, really skilled sideboarder with dredge, mm-hmm. you know exactly what to take in, what take out. Your deck rewards you for it. He was get the right cards at the right time, and I'm not just talking about the chain, but the, the ancient grudge. Mm-hmm. You know, like in the right ratios. It's not that you the deck gives it to you, but that you maximize your chances, mm-hmm. and that's the key. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the deck that you guys designed and played to top four and top two, top three and two finishes basically. So this is a deck that started out as a Bob Control deck, not Bob Control deck, a Bob Gush deck. That well, was pretty innovative. Story. Well, but it was yeah. pretty innovative to start with, right. and then it got, in my opinion, more innovative as you developed it. Yeah, I had tried the, I had tried a Bob Gush deck like maybe almost two months ago, when the uh, it was a very heavy workshop meta game, mm-hmm. and we had I don't think we had really figured out how to really solve the workshop deck at that point, like how to beat it with the uh, with a Gush deck yet. We hadn't figured out that you know Ingot Chewers were or the way to go, that was how you can beat it. And I, it seemed very counterintuitive to even have Ingachewers in my sideboard when I was going to play Bob and Gush and Force of Will in the same deck already. I'm going <laughs> to put in go more, a dozen more five, casting, five cost. casting cost cards. It just seems absolutely ridiculous. So I was thinking about things like Nature's Claim and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. I was ultimately sold on the fact that we were going to play Ingachewers in there when I played Nick Detweiler the day before, and... He had mental misstep in his shop deck, and I was like, "Man, we cannot play. <laughs> we can't rely on one casting cost spells to win it for us." Right, for sure. For the record, Nick Detweiler was playing in the main event, in the prelim, and in the main event. I think the same list, which is basically a cat stacks list, very similar to what we drafted. I didn't see his list, so I don't know if it was exactly the same, but it's very similar to the deck that we postulated on the podcast too. Two episodes ago, but he had mental missteps out of the sideboard, which it was, was pretty cool innovation. Which is pretty, I was very surprised by when, when it works. It is a serious blowout. So, um, I think what's interesting about our deck is that most people who are experienced vintage players go, "How could you possibly do that? How could you afford the life?" Yeah, and I know I reported to you at that time. I was like, "I don't yeah. think it works." Yeah, I asked you like two months ago. I was like, "Paul, what do you think about Bob Gush?" And part of it was coming out of the you know my analysis of the metagame as I was getting to get, get back and gearing up for vintage. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, well, Bob and Gush seem to be the two main blue archetypes. Why don't we just combine both draw engines? And so I called Paul and I said, "Paul, does it work?" And he said, "No." And I was like, "Okay, well, I stopped researching into that area." Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I think this I think this go ahead. Yeah, and then well then Jerry Yang yes. brought it back up again. Jerry Yang brought it back up again like a week and a half ago. Yeah, like and two I two weeks ago. And his list played so few mana sources, <laughs> it like blew my mind. I was like, is that really possible? I think he had seventeen mana sources. He had he in had his 18, original draft. Eighteen, I think. And I was like, wow, this is ridiculously few, but then I built the deck on Cockatrice, so I guess I cut and pasted it and started like goldfishing hands. And I was like, man, was a, a lot player. of these, yeah. a lot of these hands work. And I was like, wow, I bet. I don't think 18 is the right number, right. but I'm pretty sure that we can shave a lot of mana mm-hmm. in a gush dark confidant deck, which was kind of the original right. point of the original grow decks. 
yes. was that you could shave a bunch of mana in a gush deck, mm -hmm. and we had been not able to achieve that in the current gush meta game because we didn't have Merchant Scroll and Brainstorm anymore, and it seemed like something you couldn't do. Let me let me just explain why I think it seems implausible and why it works. I think if you start with a Bob deck and you add gush in and you think about it from that approach, it doesn't work. But if you start with a gush deck and you add the Bobs in, then it works. I think that's the fun, the key. Right, there's secondary draw engine. I think that's the key difference is that we, you know, most vintage players are totally familiar with Bob decks. Like they dominated for the last two years. Right, since, I've been since, playing it for months since the restriction. I want a Black Lotus and all kind of stuff with Bob. Yeah, <laughs> since the restriction the, of third suicide baseball. <laughs> Paul's been tearing up that he's player of the year in in every single player of the year category. <laughs> but but basically for the last two years, you know, the Bob deck has won each, both in the championships. And if you think about that deck and you tr and you're a player of that deck and you know how to play that deck and you think, what about adding Gush? It, it doesn't seem plausible because the life is so tenuous. While we were we were you know we really kicked into high gear research, right? You know, and I was I I had a Gush tendrils deck like a dedicated storm deck. And when we were, we were developing the cat stack deck, and the cat stack was defeating everything, I was like, there's got to be a solution to this. And I, did, I came across a solution. It was my grow deck. And the, and the solution, I figured it out, was Trigon Predator, going back to Owen and other tech. And the reason is this. Right. The reason is people were, beating, were fighting Ancient Grudge. Ancient Grudge, Brian DeMars had done his job, and Ancient Grudge was tearing up everything. And the way that the workshop players were defeating Ancient Grudge is by making Ancient Being more aggressive. Making, both being more aggressive and making Ancient Grudge cost more. So they're loading, maxing out on spheres, and they're making their deck faster. Right, and they were definitely loading up on thorns before thorns. Sphere of Resistance. Exactly, thorns. When you have four thorns and four spheres and four lodestone golems and revokers, you can actually keep a player from ever playing Ancient Grudge. That's what our testing bore out. Right. Kevin and I sat down, and we, for the last three weeks, we've been going hard at it trying to figure it out. And... What we did was, in, in, we sat down and I built the grow deck with dryads in the trigon predators, and I was smashing cat stacks. The dryads would destroy the panthers and even golems and revokers, and the, the trigon predators would come down through thorns or before the thorn came into play. Because the workshop players had shifted to be ancient grudge, they were weak to trigon predators. That's right. the key. And so we, I went to trigon. But when we tested the grow deck against the blue decks, right, it was they, weak. Well, query and dry is like a do-nothing against the... It's a do-nothing. Against the blue decks. Exactly, it was weak. Because the blue decks win so brutally fast. Exactly. And so we were thinking, you know, this, and then Jerry posted his deck, his, his, his Bob Gush Tendrils deck, at just the right time. I was like, I don't have time we to We've got to revisit that. I don't have time to do this right now. And last Friday, Paul called me. You were probably like... Going, yeah, I was getting ready for a tournament. You are getting ready for a tournament. And you were like, what do you think about this? And I'm like, well, honestly, I don't have time to do it right now. But by the end of the weekend, I'll have it figured out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it it's went, interesting, though, that like our list is almost like – it's like the next level of what Owen won with. It is. The previous year with all the new unrestrictions and well, everything that's come out of the format since then. Kind what of I'm like, suggesting, though, is that it's the inverse of that in the sense that if you think about it from a Bob deck adding Gush, that's that's – it seems less plausible. But if you think about it from a gush deck adding Bob, for example, if you think about it... But it defies conventional logic. It does. It, it does. But, but, but what makes it work is preordains and the gush package. Right. The gush package with preordains actually saves you from losing... How many games did you lose to Bob? I lost zero games to my own Dark Confidant. I lost two games to Dark Confidant, but only games where I was like at six life or under already because of right. other pressure. Or games where you had multiple Dark Confidants. Multiple Dark Confidants. So the entire tournament, I lost two games... One was to you, and one was I was just getting smashed already. You know, like I was at, I was playing against a workshop player, and he had annihilated my life. 
and I had basically like four turns at under three life with Bob. Right. And I eventually like topped, and I, I, I couldn't. I was at one or two life, and I died. But the point is that, and I'm belaboring it, but it's really important. I think that if you start with the, and I actually looked at my old gush list. I looked at the, the vintage championship deck I won with in 2007. Like I actually looked it up. I looked at my 2008 list. I was trying to think, how is this deck? How do these deck? How do these decks run? And so what I was conceptualizing it as I was designing this list and trying to tune it was the Bobs are sort of like replacing the Merchant Scroll slot in a sense, except they... They're definitely doing that. Except that they are free through Thorn, and they can trade with Slash Panthers and attack Jaces, and so they have all these built-in functions. They also tie up Jace a lot of times. That's what I mean, tie, attack Jace slash tie up. Yeah, they're like a... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, uh, if, the other, if your opponent wants to brainstorm with Jace yes. when you have Bob out, right. then you're going to get a flip and probably kill their Jace. Right. So this is much closer to a Grow-type deck Except instead of dryads, you're using bobs. Then well, it uses that growth philosophy of yes. shaving the mana base down, yes, and getting the virtual card advantage from that. But what I also mean is, it's not like the big bob deck in the sense that, like, the, I mean, the big bob deck, you would think you, it, it's difficult for experienced vintage players to understand how you can play gush because they're used to having their life being willed away. But because you, the gush package is so different with preordains and being able to save your life. I mean, preordain is really helpful in order to, you know, you save a couple life every time you play that. Right. Set up. It bore out in how you played the deck. You've mentioned twice already in the show about a choice between Bob and X. A choice right. between Bob and Click, right. you play Click. A choice between Bob, Bob and, and time, time Walk, you play Time Walk. Right. These are things that perhaps the older controller versions from last exactly. year might have made the opposite choice. Exactly. Now, they didn't have Click, of course, but right. the yeah. point is that they were more reliant on the early Bob exactly. to win the right. long As a Bob deck... You usually just try to run out Bob as fast as humanly possible so you can maximize the advantage. Right. Exactly. So there were, some, there were some other key changes. So once I you know, settled on the shell, I was like, NDA, NDA, NDA. <laughs> no one can play this deck list. And Paul was like, oh, darn. I really don't <laughs> to play this, play this list. He had been forced to play his other list. Yeah, I, know. I switched to playing something pretty similar to like uh, the, the mean deck. The, I, played the, uh, I played the mean deck version of the Gush deck. Oh, the, the straight gush, gush deck the gush, because yeah. I didn't want to, I didn't want to keep playing the Bob deck every yeah. week because people knew that that's what I've been playing. Yeah, it's it's funny. We started out with something like Sean Anthony had and Rich Shea had, and we just kept fine tuning and fine tuning it, and we even got to a place where it was really strong, but I really wasn't happy with it. I mean, there were things in there I just didn't like. It just didn't seem aggressive enough in some sense. Like the metagame had also evolved to be, people were very prepared for a gush deck. Yeah. Which is kind of a testament that Rich Shea was able to annihilate the entire prelim, <laughs> prelim tournament and then sit there and go 7-0 after his buys. He, he had 92% game win percentage or something like that. And, and he only ID'd the last round, which was probably a gift to his opponent <laughs> because he could have, he could have easily just sat there and dream crushed him. And he, he told me, I was, like, I was like, you could have just dream crushed that guy. You could have lost and still made it in. He's like, yeah, I wanted to eat. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I decided I wanted to eat. <laughs> so, what does this tell you guys about the format going forward from here? Obviously, this this top eight is going to be a springboard for the rest of the year. Well, well one one other thing I want to note about the deck is that it wasn't finished. I played in the prelim and I lost to Sean Anthony, and I was like, there's some. And, I think Paul was very surprised I played the prelim because it was NDA. Yeah, I didn't want you to play the prelim, but I guess you needed to. I need to, I need to because what I noticed before is in last year we played the, the I played the the. the I mean, deck. I had practiced the deck behind closed doors. Well, I had too, but there's no substitute for a tournament, 
And that's why I enrolled in the later tournament so that people wouldn't see what I was playing and I could get the good experience. And then it wouldn't be, it wouldn't, it's basically too late for people to change, you know. By the time I actually, if I were to win the prelim or whatever, people don't have an opportunity to change. When I won 2007, the mid-champion 2007, my prelim tournament ended at like 1 o'clock in the morning. And there were like two people there, me and Tommy Kolowith in the finals. <laughs> so no one really, you know what I mean, was prepared I could play the same deck the next day. But it was really important. I lost to Sean Anthony. I made some play mistakes. But there were, I knew there was something wrong. And I got back to the hotel room with Kevin at like 2 a.m. And we played another hour and a half. And I figured it out, a couple things out. One of the problems in the tournament... Well, you've been playing Thoughtseize. I've been playing Thoughtseize. And, which I've been advocating against the entire time. Right. But, but, I, but I, had, I wanted to have duress. Yeah. Which I, which I still don't feel like was good either. Right. I, I felt like, you know, that slot was... And then well, you came up with Spoke Well, you were still going to play what I suggested. I mean, yeah, I was like, well, I guess if... Steve. I guess I'll play the Thoughtseize, because I knew that the Thoughtseize was definitely better than Duress. Right. But I was definitely concerned about catching them later in the game right. and them being blanks. Well, one of, the things I was, one of the things that people were concerned about is life. I played th- th- through the Thoughtseize in the tournament. The life was not a problem. What was the problem is that there was something, like, fundamentally wrong with the deck that wasn't working. There was an awkwardness. Part of it is, again, like Thoughtseize and, and Dark Confidant compete for turn one plays, you know. Very true. But when I was testing against Kevin, we were like, I'm losing, I'm losing, I'm losing. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to add Spell Pierce to this deck and see what happens. And then all of a sudden I started winning. And what was weird about it, number of things weird about it, is that people were so high on Mental Misstep this weekend. They're like, Mental Misstep is where it's at. And we were joking around with all the, the East Coast guys, like, yeah, Mental Misstep's been insane for us. Yeah, it was funny. <laughs> we also told them that Jace had been very good, too. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and also people were really high on Drains. So people were playing Drains and Mental Misstep. And I was like, Spell Pierce just made perfect sense. People, no one had been playing Spell Pierce recently. It completely disappeared from Vintage. And in our deck, it just caught that spot in the metagame where people just were soft to it again. Just like the Trigon Ancient Grudge Principle. If you suggested Spell Pierce, I knew you were right. And I, so I called Paul. Actually, I called him at 9 a.m. before the tournament. I was still in my hotel. You were like half asleep. I just got out of bed. I just woke up and I, I wanted to call because I tried to, try to talk to you at night, but you fell asleep. Hmm. I called him at 9 a.m. I said, Paul... I was up till 5 a.m., <laughs> which is true. Well, you, you had to get clothes at Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> I left my suitcase at home, long, except I brought my cards, which right, was so important. After the tournament, you had to go to Walmart and buy clothes. <laughs> <laughs> right, so we didn't actually get to my hotel room until almost probably 2.30. Yeah. And I was up till 5, playtesting with Kevin, and Kevin went to sleep with Theo. And, and essentially, I... There were two things I wanted to work on. First, I needed to have a way to put Blightsteel back into my deck. You actually inadvertently had that way. It's called Key Vault. Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't care. You, yeah, well, you had a, you, I had another way to do things. Another way to do, do things. And, and I, I thought about Key Vault. I was like, is it Key Vault? Is it, so I, from the prelims, I cut the drains, the two drains. The, we both decided that's what I was going to cut. Right. Like, yeah. What are we going to put in there? And so after talking with Kevin and everyone else, uh, you know, Kevin went to sleep, and I was, I was going to be on two Js and four Spell Pierce. That was my plan. And I kept, as I was about to doze off around 5 a.m., I'm like, it's got to be click. It's got to be click. And what really sold me on click was that click does that. And we've been talking about how I wanted click before because I played click at the Mean Deck Open last weekend in my Grow deck. And it was amazing. And once I realized, just on the verge of sleep, that click does what I want Jace to do and kills Jace. And, Kevin, what you kept saying is you need to compete on the stack. You need to fight on the stack. 
And so vintage is a format that no matter how many thought seasons and dresses you have, your opponent can still just defeat you off the top of their library. It's much right. better at the same casting cost to fight on the stack rather than fight their hand. And it's sure. also a grow like card. It's aggressive and yeah. besides killing Jays. Vindilin Click is one of those cards that walks into a room and everyone looks at it. It just <laughs> shakes everything up. It does so much. It changes everything on the board. It's it a great skill tester card. It affects someone's hand. It affects the board. Yeah. It affects you know the plan, their plan. Well, there's like 101 ways you can use it. <laughs> <laughs> and each one of them is relevant. I've been saying on the rundown, the most common ways you can play it. You can play it on your opponent's draw step. Which is really to, strong. To nullify pretty much their entire turn. You almost get a time walk out of that. Yes. You could play it on their end step so that you know that you have a clear path for whatever so, you want to play on your turn or to kill a Jace. Jace yeah. Yeah. You can play it on your turn to get rid of blight steel. You can play it whenever you have blanks in your hand just to move Try another card. Yeah. You can play it as a combat trick. Right. There, you, there's so many ways you can play it. It's crazy. Right. I also thought, you know, Jace is so powerful and everyone knows it's so powerful, it'll be hated out a little more. So let me go with Click. And again, the same principle with Trigon and Spell Pierce and, and Click. I, I was really want a Time Vault as well. Now, the, but I just didn't feel like I could smash it in there. So the ma- only differences between our deck was I, you had one less land, and I... And I had Soul Ring instead, and, and I had that to facilitate the Time Vault combo. Right. That's right. And I had um, Clicks instead of the, the Time Vault combo, and in our sideboard, I had Gixla Jailer, where you didn't... Because which you probably would have helped in the final. Although, I had Pyroclasm, which helped me beat a fish deck earlier in the day, so it's hard to say. I had two Lightning Bolts in my sideboard, which were awesome. Yeah, well. I had one Lightning Bolt. That, that was the difference. I didn't run Pyroclasm. I really liked Pyroclasm, but I didn't run Pyroclasm because I had Click. It kills Click and Bobs. Right, right. I didn't want to be able to knock out my entire board. With a, Makes sense. But anyway, our deck was awesome, and it just like it was a lot of hard work to get there. You know, we had to basically be testing every day, you know, doing everything we needed to get Trigons. I actually didn't think you were gonna. I didn't think you were gonna be persuaded on the Trigons, and I was uh, concerned. And one of the things I really like about that package, I have 10 creatures. It's really deceiving. It's not a fish deck. It looks like one. Is The creatures are attacking the metagame in different angles. Like Joe Brown was terrified to play me. <laughs> well, <that's, laughs> Joe Brown's painter deck was one of the big reasons why I wanted to play Trigons. Yeah. I was like, man. Well, when you play the regular Gush deck, yeah. you can never beat that painter deck. Right. Just like you have to have the absolute crazy nuts, and he has to have nothing. Right. And, and, and that goes to show you, like, the Trigon Predator is also good against those beat stacks. I knew those things were coming up. We're in an environment, like, at Gen Con, where, the, you know, some people don't have power. And that guy, Levi, you know, made, made the finals of the prelim event. You know, there are white X green deck, beat, those beat stacks that have made top eight, and the Trigon Predator is a 2-3 wall against those things. <laughs> you know, so having more creatures allows you to buy time. It basically just stalls the ground until you get the nuts. Like, like for example, when I had those things against... The, the top eight matchup. It's not irrelevant either that the Trigon has a three toughness, so if people get Blight Seal against you, you can survive a turn. That's mm-hmm. right. And you, but what I'm going is that you That's can not irrelevant at all. You, just, <laughs> you can clog up the board to give yourself time to buy the Fast Bond, to buy tink, to find your Fast Bond, your Yogg Lower Tinker. Mm-hmm. Right. So what does this mean for this format going forward? What's going to come out of this tournament, Paul? I mean, I think the obvious implication is we're going to see the resurgence of Dredge. We've already seen it. I mean, I mean, much, much more than we had seen it. Right? I think that Mark was 
There wasn't that many dredge decks in the in the field, I don't think. No, there were. I saw a handful. That's really it. Just a handful. Yeah. It wasn't like dominance. Not dominance no, at all. Yeah. Not any. Not any more represented than we expected. I don't think. Which is which is probably good for the format in general because I think dredge is a good deck to pick up when you're kind of starting out in vintage. That's true. For a lot of players, that uh, I mean, it's it takes a lot to be able to play it at a high level, but it's a good one to get your feet wet if right. you just want to try to play something that's competitive. Right. Because you don't need a ton of expensive cards to play. You could probably, if you're playing a proxy tournament, you need like one of the most expensive cards after Bizarre Baghdad in there. Well, this version does have Lotus in it. And right. I mean, it would, but you, you have ten still, proxies. I mean, you still probably you still have just some proxy over and four Bizarres and four Mana Sources, and that's right. it. Yeah, absolutely, and so it's a real good entry point for a lot of people. Yeah, I think they would like to try vintage out and would like to try a very powerful deck. Do you think there's a flip side though that people play against Dredge and figure out, oh, this format's not for me? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not a very good ambassador for the format yeah. <laughs> that deck. But you're right; it's it's obviously going to be more powerful. What do you think about not powerful? It's going to be more represented. What do you think about people's there, reactions you know, to legacy it? Legacy players can come over that play dredge too in my uh in my q2 metagame report which we did for eternal central we talked a little bit about how dredge is at a peak like there were 11 percent of top eights were dredge yeah which is the most ever so this might be the crest before the <laughs> i think that we're gonna see a lot more dredge hate and a lot more people testing against dredge which will make it harder for dredge pilots too because they'll know how to manipulate their hate better yeah that makes true. sense so you think we're going to go up from the sixth? That uh... <laughs> I do think. I think that our Bob Jace deck, our Bob Gush deck, is going. Yeah, to... there was no Jace. <laughs> <laughs> I think our Bob Gush deck is going to become the standard of the Gush decks going forward, and we're going to see. I think it's going to be like a wildfire explosion of them. That's what I think. Oh yeah. Well, Rich's deck will probably have some popularity too in Without terms question. of Gush. But I expect to see our decks in Europe. I think they're going to be like so Morphling.D results. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All over the place. So, shops, I think shops uh, are just going to continue to decline because Slash Panther is amazing, but we, our deck was really well suited to beating it. And shops have trouble against a dredge deck. Mm-hmm. What did Ryan Glacken have for that? Precursor uh, goal? Apparently not enough. Right, and plus Mark had the ancient dredge and stuff. Right, right. Pretty rough. And I imagine if you played the first round of the mat, the top eight between Joe Brown's painter deck and Ryan's cat stacks deck, if you play that matchup ten times. Painter wins more than half of those. Probably, so. Dredge can run ley lines though. I no, mean, no, I guess can, I, uh, shops can run ley no, lines, they can. and if they Do if they know, back Ryan up was? ley lines, if you back up ley line with some relics, and with stuff some uh, those like Pete thorns and oh, yeah. spears, then they'll never be able to play the cards that can defeat it. Well, last yeah. year we played serum powder and eight ley lines in our workshop board, right. which I would have I would have played at least like two or three serum powders and four ley lines if I was playing. Do you, either of you know if Ryan was playing the ley line of psychancy of his? No, his sideboard. I saw it on. Uh, actually, he he had deck tech. The wizards, uh, the wizard of the coast uh, coverage team did deck tech on Ryan Glacken and myself yesterday. Yeah. And I saw his sideboard. He had like precursor golems and a whole bunch of other stuff. Oh, uh, see, I don't think he was very well positioned in that matchup. But yeah. so that's he had, beside he the had point. sideboard action to beat other shop decks. And there, like that. there yeah. was a fair representation of workshops in the metagame at the in the tournament as a whole. But I did notice a surprising abundance of goblin welders. That was strange. I saw a lot of that too. There was there mm-hmm. were a handful of cat Goblin stacks. Goblin Mothers were coming back. Goblin Mothers were out in force. I wouldn't be surprised if at least the and top finishing decks were more than fifty percent well. Yeah, you can't write off shops. And people are playing metal missteps in their workshop sideboard. Like the, yeah. I mean, I mean that's well, you know, they're just have to. They're going to be. Evolve. They're evolving. Yeah. 
And yeah. so, you know, the people who are good at shop, we'll figure it out. Yeah. And Brian DeMars will figure out the solution going forward, too. <laughs> so <laughs> he always does. So we've got Paul here, who's a very special guest. And we don't get every chance to interview him in person very much. So we wanted to ask him one special favor to tell us the story of <laughs> the origin of Mean Deck. Well, Paul, Paul first tell, tell where we come from, how far back we go. Yeah. I think I met you in the year 2000, 2001. I, I saw Steve playing at the College Rec Center. <laughs> I saw him I playing was the president with, of the Strategy Games Club. At I saw him playing with like a, maybe like one other guy, and they were playing with pretty much all proxies. And they were, but they were playing Type One, it was called at the time. And I had, I, I, pretty much, I had all the power except like, for Black Lotus. I got a deck, and my deck I knew was awesome. <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh man! I was like, wow, these people are playing Type One. I was so excited. I came to college, I brought all my cards, and I thought to myself. <laughs> Will I even find anybody else that will play Type One with me? Right. You know, I had no idea. And I saw them playing, and I was like, "Oh man!" I was like, "Wait right here, I'll be back. <laughs> I'm coming back with my deck." And I came back, and of course, my I had all the cards and stuff, you know, and everything. It was, and I was playing that Illusions Donate deck, and I, I remember I totally destroyed you by keeper. Yeah, you had the yeah keeper five card control. I was like, "Let's play again, play again." Yeah, and you went like nine zero. I, I was like, "Can't be real. Let's play again." Play again. <laughs> I just kept beating him, and then after that, Steve was like, "Wow, well, you know, there's a lot more possibilities than I considered." And we started working on decks. We had the illusions deck, illusionary math deck, illusionary math deck. We had all kind of cool decks. Yeah. And you know, over and then we played like the first iteration of the Type One Grow deck. Right. At that uh, at that tournament, and you you wrote like which was pretty much your first major article. <laughs> just all these things started happening, and you were on that team, the Paragons. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. And I remember that you started to get tired of them, and you felt like they didn't really do much. Yeah, they were very active, like yeah. most of the market. You're like, I think I want to form my own team. Right. And we were all we were, we would always go to these events. Like we would go to the PTQs, and we would play side event like eight we'd play side s- events. Side event vintage. Right. Right. <laughs> that was our thing. That was how we played vintage. The side event vintage. Yep. Yeah, like stupid eight-mans. And we played against this guy one time. Well, I was playing mono blue, and this guy was playing a mono black deck. I, I remember he, he said that, and he's like, he's like, I don't have any rares in my deck. And I remember you were, you were like, good. <laughs> His deck featured hits like stone-throwing devils. Stone, I, got, I got stone-throwing devils. I got paralyzed. You're like, do you have necropotence? He's like, no, I don't have necropotence. <laughs> well, he played paralyzed on my Ophidian. And had, he played. <laughs> he played a second paralyzed on your fitting. I called the judge. And he called the judge, and, and he was, it was ruled that it wasn't cumulative. And he was really upset <laughs> he was about mad. it. He wrote wizards. It got a change. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, we're gonna make one person happy today. <laughs> but the thing, the thing this guy kept saying was, "I got me a mean deck <laughs> right here, stone throwing devils, black knight, <laughs> bad mood." <laughs> <laughs> and I remember when, when you decided you wanted to make your own team, you're like, I'm gonna, because we kept, we always talked about this guy afterwards. And I would always, I'd always say, like, got me a mean deck. And you're like, I'm gonna call it mean deck, like the guy. I thought, let's call it team. I got me a mean deck. Yeah, exactly. Team mean. How about just mean deck? 
I hope that guy's listening to this show right now. <laughs> probably, probably not. It's funny. He's writing another letter I, about paralyzed. <laughs> What's funny is that I used to say, I used to guess, I guess at tournaments I used to have it of saying, I have so many insane plays. And Nat Endress and his Nat Endress. Funny Matt, that Matt, Endress. Matt Endress would say, like, you got so many insane plays, Steve. And when they asked me to make a column title, I was like, that's it. And, and the editor at Star City Games, it was like, uh, I don't know, just like, just try it, see what it's like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you would really just sit, you'd, you'd look at your hand, you'd fan your hand open <laughs> in, in a tournament, you go, oh, so many insane plays. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we all have our little sayings. I say that, and that guy would say, I got me a main deck. <laughs> Paul, Paul always has a main deck. Absolutely. I wouldn't play any other kind. <laughs> He's kicking your butt with a smile on his face. <laughs> All right, Steve. Well, this has been a pretty successful weekend for, for our team and for you guys specifically. Do you have any more questions for Paul before we let him go? Paul, it's, it's, what's it like playing out there? Like out east? Cause you, were, you were in Pittsburgh and you got to play some, but now you're just like, you, you know, it's funny. When I talk to people, they're like, Paul's a road warrior. <laughs> like he, he goes like, you're just like, a pro. Well, when I moved to when I moved to DC, I was kind of concerned because I was like, "Well, who am I going to play Magic with?" And somebody told me that Nat Mose had moved to DC and that he had got together a small group of people to play vintage with on a weekly basis. And I was like, "Oh, that's awesome! I'm definitely going to hook up with them." And you know, so we play once a week on Thursdays, and I and then they started to have regular tournaments within a couple hours of me. There's a Bluebell and near Philadelphia is only about three hours away. Bloomsburg's about four hours away, and New York is about five hours away. Well, it's it's on Long Island, so that's why it's five hours away. It's really only four to get to New York, but Long Island is pretty long <laughs> <laughs> to get over there. So, which, which was just awesome because I used to have to drive five hours just to get to Bluebell, and driving to New York was pretty much out of the question unless we were playing for some serious prize. Like mm-hmm. I think I drove out there a couple times to play Black Lotus and. The one time, I definitely was at, like, uh, you know, Nick Detweiler was running the tournaments, and he sweetened it up by, you know, people that had performed well in tournaments were able to get buys in his Black Lotus mm. tournament and things mm. like that. So, You won a Black Lotus last month, right? I did. I won a Black Lotus last month playing at, uh, at New York. Mm. Yeah, playing the uh, Suicide Jays Ball deck. <laughs> so, What's your accumulated winnings this year? <laughs> pretty ridiculous. Pretty ridiculous. I've won a ton of things. And You're about as close as you can get to a professional vintage player. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I, are you going to win prizes for the player of the year? They have I'll get to play free for the entire next year. Wow. <laughs> nice. That's several hundred. <laughs> so that seems pretty good for me since, you know, I'm always there anyway. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah, it's been really awesome that I happen to kind of move into the area where just all the major vintage events are happening. We're getting, like, you know, 35 or more players at pretty much all these tournaments. So it's it's been pretty good. A really, really good times. The crowd is that it's out there are dedicated players. The players in you know Philadelphia and New York are actually pretty talented. You know, a significant portion of that group was here this weekend, right? Yeah, I think that they we looked at the top eight and it was uh, other than you, Steve, and uh, that the Joseph guy that played the, play. the you played in the first yeah, round of top eight. Everybody else was a bluebell player. A month ago, I asked, and we were talking, I was talking to Brian DeMars about this tournament. He said that you were the odds-on favorite to win this, <laughs> and you came this close. Ugh. Not just to winning the tournament, but to being the first vintage repeat champion. 
I've got to try again next year. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for joining us, Paul. And we'll end this segment now, but we'll be back with some more interviews later. So we're here again at Gen Con Live 2011 in the aftermath of the Vintage Champs. Steve and I are here talking to one Nick Detweiler. Nick, do us a favor and introduce yourself. Hi, gents. Uh, I'm Nick Detweiler, tournament organizer and player from New York, and uh, great to be here. So you you run those NYSE tournaments we talked about in the past. (laughs) (laughs) I do indeed run those NYSE tournaments, and I'm not quite as lame as I was in the past as now. I'm (laughs) posting the reports back up on TMZ, but yeah. Good. Thank you for that. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Tell us, what's important, do you think, for the vintage community these days as a TO? I think there are a few things in particular that uh, that a successful TO or someone who's looking to be a successful TO needs to, to look to do. Um, the first thing is there's this uh, natural attrition that happens with vintage just because uh, you know players get older, players get married. And even if they do retain interest in the format, they don't necessarily have the same amount of time or money to devote to it. So... It's not necessarily waning interest, but um, waning availability. And you have to replace that because if you don't, if you're not active in recruiting uh, the younger generation, kids who are you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, uh, you're going to hit a point where you, know, you could offer great prize support and still not necessarily have the, the tournament attendance that you had hoped for. Um, so I think the first thing uh, is finding a TO, or if you're looking to be a TO, um, finding a way to reach out to the Friday Night Magic players, the Pro Trip Ballfire players, the, the guys that are just there at the local store for a draft on the weekends, and um, showing them vintage, because it is, it's a great format. And beyond being a great format, it's a format that sells itself very well, I think. Um, there's a lot of nostalgia attached to the cards, and beyond the nostalgia, there's a desire to play with them. And curiosity. So, yeah, there's definitely a curiosity in the format, and I think that um, reaching out to those FNM, PTQ, limited players um, and showing them the format, which in turn entails having you know more than one deck built, um, being able to play pickup games and, and being good about it, not looking to you know just run them into the ground, but looking to you know educate them and show them and you know explain proxies and, and you know online sites like Morphling.de or the Mana Drain where you can find information. I think. That in particular is a very important thing. What um, do those players say when you approach them about vintage? What are the stereotypes they have about the format? You know, it's funny. Um, I felt like in the past there were a lot of players in particular who thought that the format was uh, very combo dominated. Uh, that you know the the early game was the uh, the coin roll, uh, coin flip. The uh, mid game was uh, shuffling, and the, the end game was you know the turn one when you drew your opening hand. Yeah, it's, and that's obviously not how the format is. Um, I think it's great to dredge one, if only because it shows that what had been perceived as a budget deck is capable of taking on the power blue decks in the format, the power mm-hmm. shot decks in the format, and mm-hmm. um, and winning. Um, That's an interesting point. That deck was probably the least expensive deck in the top eight, wasn't yeah. it? And yeah. if you imagine that deck with 15 proxies where you don't have bizarre Baghdad, so you could probably build Mark Horn's deck for $200 or less. Right. And if you look at the price on what some standard rares are going for, it's not even comparable. Right. Uh, it's the history with Jace the Mind Sculptor in particular certainly proves that. And uh, I So you said that players don't have those stereotypes anymore. What What do you what I, do they I have think now? that, I mean, locally, and maybe this is just my experience because um, 
I mean, I've worked to build a format, but there are a lot of guys locally that have worked to build a format. I think that when the players have been introduced to uh, introduced the, to the format, um, not just in, in seeing the cards and seeing the decks, but in seeing them in action and playing them uh, themselves, I think that those players um, kind of lose some of those stereotypes because they see that the games are interactive. It's still magic at the end. Mm -hmm. It's just it's a faster, more pure version of the game that you know certainly um, certainly strikes a chord with the older players, but can definitely strike the same chord with younger players if approached correctly. Mm -hmm. So you, you said that the, the format sells itself. What do you think that, that players find attractive in vintage? You know. I felt like uh, 10 years ago, um, Magic was much more of a spell game, uh, whereas now it's much more of a creature war. Hmm. Uh, and that in particular uh, seems to resonate with a few players who, you know, even within the last hmm. four or five years, playing decks like uh, Guillaume Wafotapa's Gifts deck, hmm. uh, stuff like that that might not necessarily be available to them now, um, that strikes a chord and that they weren't necessarily looking forward to a creature war. Um, I mean, we joke that, you know, that the a few years ago, we joked that the best blue creature ever printed was Tarmogoyf or Dark Hunter, you know. And and for it to be a format where you're worried about that, and you're not worried about, um, you know, necessarily thinking about say uh, a spell deck really, uh, but like beaters and whatever else to go with, you know, some tempo disruption draw to uh, to get you there is, is it's interesting. I mean, that's not necessarily what everybody's looking for. And I think the vintage is a able to sell itself well in part because it is different from that. And yet, even still, if you did want it to be a, a creature fight, um, you know, decks like Noblefish or uh, Blue-White Blackfish deck that Nat Mose uh, won the Sandusky yeah. tournament on July 2nd with, those are, I mean, they're creature decks, but they're also vintage decks, and they're very powerful. Do you have any specific advice for supporting a community from two perspectives, one of the aspiring TO and also of the player, the, the player who wants to be a player in a new community. How do you think those roles are different? It's an interesting question. Uh, I'm going to respond first to the player question. I think that if you are an aspiring vintage player... Um, One that maybe doesn't have a community. Right. Uh, I think that the, the easiest thing to do would be to um, just take 60 cards or proxy up whatever you want to proxy up and grab a friend. I mean, Magic isn't a solitary game. Um, it's a it's a game based on you know coming out and spending time with other people and interacting with them mm -hmm. and uh, it's natural to form those kinds of you know relationships with those friendships with other people. I mean, you know, find me a, a magic player who you know is hanging out alone. I'll tell you his friends aren't there yet. Um, yeah. So I, I think that that reaching out to the you know if you are that that aspiring player then. Reaching out to your friends, um, communicating your interests, and also trying to um, trying to you know garner theirs um, is is the best way to do it. And, and the best way to do that is to you know proxy up decks and once again show them the format and try and break some of the stereotypes that maybe they have, and you know show them that you know with proxies and, and whatever else, um, the format isn't as expensive as a lot of the other forms of Magic. Um, you know not to hammer the point home too hard, but uh, you know Horn on the Stretch deck with you know, 15 boxes is under $200. Um, I don't know if I could build, you know, like the, the best deck in, in standard for $200. I don't think I could build it for four. So mm -hmm. um, from that perspective of a, uh, of a player, um, you've got to reach out to the people that you know, the people that you're friends with, the people that you think might be interested, and you've got to you know, show them the format and, um, and try and, and get games in and trying to grow their interest. As a TO, um, 
There are a few more facets to it. Um, I have good working relationships with uh, pretty much all the store owners on Long Island, and I have different events that go, uh, everything from weekly to bi-weekly to monthly at uh, different stores. And in doing that, um, you kind of manage to build like local area player bases that are centric to that store. So um, at one of the NYSEs that I had you know, a few months ago, I had something like 15 players that all came from one store. Uh, and that alone, I mean, really, really helps your, your tournament attendance. And when you manage to um, run events like that, consistent events like that, um, I think it does draw players in. Finnish players don't want to just play once a month, just like you wouldn't want to play Magic once a month. You want to play Magic, you know, weekly or you know a couple times a week. And if you can, if you can have a um, a venue for that, if you can have tournaments for that, even if they're small, even if it's you know ten dollar entry, you know ten guys fighting it out for a duel and some packs. I mean that's it's a way to grow the format. Um, so. I have good working relationships with uh, the big storms on Long Island. Um, I've reached out to you know friends that you know used to play vintage and got out, or friends that you know just got into Magic and are looking to to play. Um, and you know it does um, snowball at that point. Uh, I didn't get everybody who plays vintage in New York into vintage. Um, I got a fair number of guys in, but those guys in turn told their friends and told their friends and told their friends mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, we have a, a solid player base of, you know, maybe 50 or so guys in that one community that all play. And that, you know, it's a big step from, you know, where New York Vintage was three years ago where maybe it was 10 or 15 guys that played and were willing to travel to a tournament. So you wear many hats I mean, as a TO, as a community organizer, as a player. And we've asked you some really important questions for audience and for the vintage community about TO. But I'm curious about Nick Detweiler, the player, too. How do you see yourself as a vintage player? And what, it, you know, um, how long have you been playing? And what, what do you like? And what draws you as a player to the format? And how do you play the game? So um, I've been playing since the end of '94. Uh, I learned when I was living in Europe. We moved back to the States, and um, I was starting high school, and uh, you know, I didn't have a ton of friends. The people that I knew were, you know, just kids when we left. So. Magic was a uh, magic was a means to uh, hang out with people, uh, meet new people, uh, you know, gain some friends and, and you know have a good time. Um, so, uh, I mean, I've been playing since the end of '94. Um, what draws me in as a player? Um, goodness, here's an experience for you. Here's the story. So in about 2003, uh, I had been basically running blue decks for the three years that I've been playing Vintage at that point. Um, I'd done nothing but run blue decks. I ran Keeper, I ran BBS, I ran uh, blue uh, Landstill deck at one point, and um, I identified specifically as just a control pilot. Uh, and I have a good friend who, um, incidentally, uh, only played Vintage this one time, but he had taken uh, taken some cards that he had and um, he put together the first iteration of uh, stacks with meditates and welders and, and spheres and staffs. Uh, and anyways, so 
we sat down, he was interested, he wanted to play, and we played seven games. And in our first seven games, I went 0-7. Uh, I could not, I just could not handle. And uh, my buddy then, you know, said, well, you know, these, these games don't feel very fair. How about you go through your deck and you sculpt, like, the perfect hand. Uh, and we'll play, like, you know, three more games, and we'll see how it goes. Uh, so I went through and I, I sculpted, and I had, you know, swords for his welder and ancestral force backup, you know, some lands, and I promptly went 0-3. Uh, so after my 0-10 experience uh, playing against workshops, I decided that was it. Uh, that was the end, and that was the last time that I ran Manager Ains of Force of Wills in a tournament. Uh, so basically from 0-3 on... Um, I love playing workshops. I think that there is a flavor of workshops that's right for just about every metagame. I don't know that workshop decks are as well metagamed as they could be. Um, mm. Just like a blue deck can metagame, a workshop deck can metagame. We um, had been testing various shop lists, and uh, there were two decks in particular, two variants that uh, were successful. I don't like shop aggro. Yeah, I, we had two different decks. Um, tell, tell us about it. Yeah. So the first deck was uh, Slash Panther, uh, basically aggro deck. Um, we felt that with the spheres, the chalices, the wastes, and then aggressive creatures, we were able to use the, uh, the spheres, the wastes, uh, wires, whatever, as just disruption to um, get through and do the requisite 20 points of damage. And it did test well, um, but the games didn't feel as interactive as I wanted them to. Uh, they didn't feel as skill-dependent as I wanted them to. Uh, there were some neat things that we did. Um, I didn't really like Sphere Resistance at all in that build. I didn't think it was very good. Um, and to be fair, like this is this is Vinny Farino's creation. Um, we call it Frexian Shops, and we ran uh, Mental Missteps as well, which, once again, which is Tempo, as uh, Mr. Crone over there discovered when uh, his preordain was countered by me, and uh, as Mr. Mastriano discovered when his Ancestral Recall in Game 3 was misstepped. Um, but even still, like that's not my kind of my kind of shops. So I don't really enjoy that. Um, with a field full of blue decks that were all on two ancient grudge main, and then potentially a third in the board along with nature's claims and hercules, but lower on hercules, lower on rebuild than they'd really ever been before. Uh, Welder was particularly powerful, um, hmm. and that was a point that Raf Farino uh, brought up. And Raf Farino uh, built the deck that uh, Vinny, Raf, and I all played. Um, on Saturday. Uh, I started off 3-0. I mulliganed uh, to 4 and then 5 against Rick Shea, and I got a loss there, and then I had a model to... Was that your first match against Rick Shea ever? That was my first match against Rick Shea. Um, wow. Yeah. He's a great guy. Uh, good friend. Um, you know, and I wish that I'd been able to give him a more interactive set, but... Uh, and then I had models to 5, 5, and 4 in uh, round 5, and that was it for me. So, I don't know, maybe I should have run Slash Panthers, but um, I don't know, I, I think that the workshop decks that we had built were good metagame calls, good responses to the blue decks in the field. One of the things that we discussed earlier in this podcast, you didn't have the benefit of hearing, is that there have been a number of shifts, evolutions in the field. So, for example, as people moved away from um, Spell Pierce to Drains and Mental Missteps, Spell Pierce has become better. And if people move towards Ancient Grudge, which has really become extremely popular over the last four or five months, the workshop decks, in our estimation, have become weaker to Trigon Predator again. And so that's particularly why we ran that card, mm -hmm. because of our, basically, we, we saw the Ancient Grudge just was no longer working. So then it seems to move in those cycles where one card becomes popular, people figure out the answer, and then another card becomes better until people figure out the answer. I think, I think you've just illustrated that, that principle again. I observed as I was looking around the top tables near the end of the Vintage Championships that despite the fact that Ryan made top eight with Slash Panther, 
it seemed to be tilted more toward goblin welders near the top tables, which was a development, right. that's a exact, recent development that's in our That's point that, that illustrates this principle, which is so, that as people prepare for decks without goblin welder, goblin welder becomes stronger. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think those listening to this who maybe just view the top eight decks and think that was the standard for this tournament aren't seeing the whole picture. The right. Goblin Welders were well represented in the, the top That's tables. True. My Goblin Welders, my first three match wins, uh, I started off three out. My Goblin Welders were very powerful, uh, yeah. and I don't think that the Blue Decks were ready for them. Right. Uh, they had really been cheating on their creature destruction. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't see Doom Blades or anything like that uh, in the top eight uh, lists for the last couple months, so yeah. we really felt that Welder was a very strong call, and I think it was. I think Welder is right right now. But it's funny that you mentioned Mental Misstep in a workshop deck, and then you mentioned the power of Goblin Welders. It seems like there's an inherent tension specifically between those two cards, not just in workshops, but I mean in the metagame as a whole. Rich Shea was running four Mental Missteps in his deck, for instance, which would definitely diminish the utility of your Goblin Welders. It definitely would, but it's all about how you set it up. Uh, yeah. Workshop order is the most important thing that a workshop pilot has. And you mean sequencing? Sequencing, yeah, sure. Um, you can call it that. Uh, mm-hmm. But orders, orders the most important thing after you get past the basics of learning how to stack your triggers. I definitely agree with that, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's something that I'm very uh, uh, cognizant of. I mean, when a workshop deck is properly set up, well, you have to have the cards for it, but when you have a good enough hand and you can properly set it up, it doesn't matter what the blue pilot has. Mm-hmm. In, in our testing, again, just to illustrate this point, we, we noticed that Ancient Grudge is no longer working. Mm-hmm. And a big reason was people were maxing out on spheres, but not just spheres, and thorns. Which really, and you could basically set it up so Angel Grudge could never actually be cast. Mm-hmm. But what we found was that because they were emphasizing Thorn mm-hmm. over Spear, Trigon Predator was actually a much easier cast. And it has the advantage over Ancient Grudge of being a proactive card, and that you can get it down, for example, on turn one or turn two. With the Force of Will, if you force the first, like, Spear, you can just play the Trigon Predator and, get it, and go to town. Mm-hmm. It's a very fair point. Um, it's a very fair point. I think uh, there's a lot of value in that point. I would still say that, well, I don't know. I, I think that the printing of Phyrexian Metamorph in particular kind yeah. of weakens Trigon Predator on yeah. the whole. I mean, there's definitely value, and you can certainly catch pilots unaware, but um, I would be wary of relying too much on Predator alone to get you there. I mean, right. you probably need a, a certain suite of, of hate. I started out with three Predator, two Ancient Grudge, and Hercules mm-hmm. in our list. <laughs> but but what, what was interesting, it, though, is that... Um, so we, 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 we actually tuned a pretty good Slash Panther list mm-hmm. that actually, I think, is virtually the exact same creature base that Ryan Glacken played. In fact, his cards were 58 of the one that I posted on the Mana Drain. Um, he had two factories instead of uh, the third City of Traders and the, the other, but we had been testing against that. And what we also discovered was that, really, the Workshop player plays the Metamorph very quickly. You know, and they don't tend Which to hold on. Which is a mistake. On. I agree with you. Which is a mistake. I agree with you. I had a top uh, top eight match um, in the prelim tournament where my opponent um, tinkered up a Blightstone Colossus, and I had had Phyrexian Metamorph in my hand. And there were opportunities p- to play it where it could have been another creature, it could have right. been another spear effect, but it wasn't right. It was better to, to save it and, and wait. And I ended up uh, top decking the second Metamorph and copying his Blightsteel twice, and he ended up dying <laughs> to his own Blightsteel. So. <laughs> that's, that's a very good point. So are you in favor of... Four metamorphs. Four metamorphs is too much. You can run the fourth in the sideboard. There's certainly matches where you want it, but you don't want to ever have a hand where you mulligan and you're on six, five cards, something like that, and you've got two of them in your hand, some mana, and one real threat. Because if that one real threat is countered, the game is over. Yeah. So I want to circle back to, to the, the TO question. And I was looking at the Wizards, uh, I think yesterday, put up the top eight profiles and, and some actually uh, somewhat extensive uh, coverage of the Vintage Championship, at least especially the top eight. In the profiles, it was interesting to see 
the ages of the people who made top eight. Um, it was like 31, 29, 30, 30, 28. It was, it was much older than we might have seen in the past. You know, you look at a, a PTQ top eight or even a PT top eight, and they have the ages. Like it ranges from like 20 to 25, something like that. Sometimes 17, and yeah. you know, and, mm-hmm. and so it, vintage seems to have an older player base on, on, the, on the one hand. But what I heard you saying earlier is that there's a need to recruit players who are younger. You know, up and comers like Sean Anthony, who showed tremendous promise. Um, but Jake on the other hand, Jake Gans. But there. Isn't there a flip side of that, you know? And, and you said that the people cycle out of the game for natural reasons, but isn't it possible that we're missing something? That people cycle back into the game, and that how do you? I think that, and the reason I say all that is because I think that Magic has been structured to recruit new players, but not structured sufficiently to retain those players over time. And one of the reasons is, is that you would before the podcast we've been talking about uh, prize support. Mm-hmm. You know that that PTQ players get pretty abysmal prize support. You know, aside from the the, the queue itself, um, and the standard players, in many, I, one could characterize it as being taken advantage of in a sense. And vintage players expect more. They expect more, not just because of the money, but because of the respect and the the enticement and so on and so forth. So what I'm wondering is, how do you structure an environment or, or a metagame or a really a tournament setting that keeps players involved, given the responsibilities of being an adult? I mean. You mentioned, again, uh, weekly tournaments. You know, for someone like us, that might not be a viable thing. Right. So, so do you think retention is important? And if so, how do you how do you do that? Retention is very important, but how possible it is is determined by an individual basis. Um, one of my closest friends uh, is Raffarino. Raffarino is 38, uh, has a four-year-old daughter, has a wife, you know, full-time job, responsibilities, and... While he might have wanted to come and play in Blue Bell tournaments or my tournaments or you know raised tournaments up in Connecticut, it's not always possible. Uh, life intervenes. So while the interest is there, I think he's an example of the interest being there, uh, but the time not necessarily being there. Is he able to play? Absolutely. Will he continue to play? I certainly hope so. Um, well, let me let me follow up on this point. So as people leave vintage because they get married, maybe they have a baby. What about re-entry? It seems to me that I've observed this on our team. People leave, but they actually end up coming back. For example, they get a period in their life where they're just so busy and they can't do it. But then a year or two or three later, they get the bug again. Right. And there's a moment, an opportunity, where they could come back into format and they test the waters a little bit, see if they like it. And they go into a, 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 a tournament and they see a bunch of 17-year-olds and they remember this, you know, the negative ambiance and they say you know this isn't for me or it could be wow vintage is awesome i'm buying back in again you know and they go gung-ho i've seen it both ways how, do you think that re-entry is important and if so how do you structure re-entry to re-entry is important sure um do I you see that in your experience the way i just described i can think of a few guys in particular that are kind of on the, the fringes and might not necessarily be there for every event, but right. um, still have that you know minimum level of interest that demands them demands of them that they uh, they show up for an event you know once in a while, uh, and they, they hold on to their cards they don't sell out. Um, I mean yeah sure and, and and working working to include them at some level to keep them in the loop and to mm-hmm. try and keep them interested is important and and. Definitely worthwhile, um, but I don't think that you can build a full player base on that. And Fair. even while you might get these guys to come out for you know six of the nine events that you run over the course of the year, six of the nine big events that you run over the course of the year, 
you can't count on them moving forward if only because while they might show up, they might not. And it's a better bet that the guy who's 21 years old and you know has more free time uh, shows up than the guy who's you know 35 years old and has you know some serious life commitments can show up. Interest alone isn't always enough. How do you structure your tournaments from a prize support, from a proxy standpoint? Who are you targeting with your tournament structure? So when I first started to run the events, uh, when I first started to run events again, goodness, in July of 2009, uh, I reached out to uh, local area players, uh, Friday Night Magic players, PTP players, players uh, like I mentioned earlier, and um, these were guys that I had uh, relationships with, if only because at that point in time, you know, I would draft on the weekends, I would occasionally play, you know, in a, a sanctioned tournament. Uh, at a store, and so I knew them um, through those means. Uh, I reached out to them, and I, I worked on building other decks. I mean, at one point in time, I had five vintage decks put together, and you know, whenever a tournament came, I would lend out five different decks and have five different guys who all played. And that's not me patting myself on the back. I think that's what we need to do in order to grow the format, because there were a number of those guys who then, in turn, after a few tournaments where you know they had borrowed a deck and they had enjoyed it and they you know done well or whatever went out and they spent money and they built the deck themselves and it was one more player that we we had uh, we had for the tournament scene. Um, how do I structure it for the older players? Um, I mean, a lot of them are personal friends, so just reaching out, making sure that they're they're aware. Maybe they don't check up on TMD. As often as you know, the kids, uh, maybe they're not aware of all the events that are being being run. So just one-on-one -on -one communication. But um, yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much it. And what about prize support? Prize support is a very interesting question. Um, there's definitely a happy medium where the TO can still make a little money uh, and the players can be happy with their support. I've seen tournaments run where the prize support is. You know, 40 or 50 percent of whatever the the entry fee uh, you know pay-in was, and um, the TOs generally weren't very successful. Uh, but I've also seen you know I've seen tournaments and I've you know I've, I've had a tournament here or there where I felt like the prize support was um, significant enough. I mean close to 80 percent of, uh, of payout where um, you know I should have had better attendance than I had. So it's not necessarily just prize support. Um, you know the venue itself obviously plays a very big role. Uh, the tournaments that I run, the NYC tournaments that I run, the big ones are run out in Suffolk County at uh, Brothers Grimm. Brothers Grimm is a tremendous store. It stores something close to 4,000 square feet. Uh, I mean, we had 90 players there in January playing vintage, and if we had another 30 or 40, we could have fit them too. Uh, two bathrooms, it's clean. Uh, you know, the staff is friendly. You know, there's a large selection of singles. Uh, I mean, the venue itself is very important. Uh, the judge staff. Um, Nothing burns a player more than feeling like a judge blew a call hmm. and it cost them hmm. a game or cost them a match. Hmm. And so, you know, judges are human beings too and they're going to make mistakes. But making sure that the judge uh, knows how to approach the player, knows how to, to resolve conflicts in a, in a positive way where everyone can maybe not walk away happy, but at least walk away feeling like it was the best of you know, all possible outcomes given what had happened. I think that's very, very important. Um, you know, having being a TO and knowing that you um, you know have a good relationship with your players. Uh, in my case, with uh, my dealer uh, or my dealers um, is is important as well because I need to I need to hit a minimum threshold in terms of price support. Uh, Seventy percent is probably minimum threshold for that in terms of payout. 
uh, I need to have venue, and I need to have, you know, those working relationships. So, I mean, I think those three things in particular encompass what, uh, what a successful TO should be looking for. And does your price support, what does it consist of? Cash, packs, store credit? I, um, I might be too biased, uh, but I found that cash tournaments in general uh, were not as well attended mm. as tournaments that had actual card price support. And it's interesting because it feels like a player, uh, especially an older player who has the cards, who doesn't need whatever, would rather play right. for cash. But there's no guarantee on the cash. Mm -hmm. There's no guarantee. It's all dependent on the number of players. Whereas if I post a tournament like the one that I had in uh, July, uh, I was able to offer price support guaranteed of an ancestral and a time walk. The rest of it was not guaranteed, but those two pieces were guaranteed. Mm -hmm. So the players knew at the very least that they were going to be coming in and they were going to be competing for $800 worth of cards at that point, maybe more. Um, and I don't think that someone who's looking to play in a tournament who has... Um, a tournament that has a, a cash payout knows that. So mm -hmm. in turn, what do they do? Maybe they show, maybe they don't. Maybe they think that there are only going to be 10 guys, but if you thought there were only going to be 10 guys duking it out for an ancestral recall or ancestral recall in a time you'd be like, yes. Yeah, you'd show up. <laughs> well, maybe there's also, I think there's also something you know, fighting for a mox. Even yeah. though you might you might own the mox, it's just fun to go play for a mox. Yeah. One of the things I hear from vintage players over time is a sense of pride about how much power I've won. One, right. Yeah. Nobody, no vintage say, players say I've won, won. Yeah, eight hundred dollars playing Legacy. They or vintage. They say I've I've won a Lotus and I, this is my ancestral and I won these two mox and it's yeah. it's a source of pride. It's a great. Point. And I'm sure that if I asked the two of you how many pieces of power you've won, <laughs> yeah. you'd probably be able to tell me right. That's a good point. Yeah. And I can't tell you how much money or packs right. I've won. Those no. things just fade into memory. And I can't tell you what I won in terms of you know other prize payout, but I can tell you I've won 12 pieces of power exactly. you know, in, exactly. in competing in tournaments. I can't tell you oh, I won foil foxes or whatever else because exactly. that doesn't matter. It's right. the power that matters. That's a very good point. I think that's something that should be well, well learned by the aspiring TOs and players listening. So I, I have um, one last question. Shoot. Um, it's two parts. Where do you see where do you see vintage going? What's the trajectory of vintage, and where do you think it will be in five to ten years? Okay, um, I think it's I think vintage is at a very critical point right now in that uh, the, the format seems to be short on tos. Um, the interest is there. I think if the players were given the opportunity to play, they would play. Uh, I think if it was presented to them in the right way, uh, they would play, they would go out, they would commit to the format, they would buy the cards, and I think they would enjoy it in part because because of the shenanigans that happen with uh, standard cards rotating or in the instance of Jace the Mind Sculptor and Stoneforge Mystic getting banned and players feeling cheated in some sense. I know that my Black Lotus is going to be playable you know, five years from now, ten years from now, so long as the game and the format is alive. So what does the format need? I think I think the format needs more TOs. Where do I see the format in five to ten years? I think at the very least we're capable of muddling along. But muddling along mm -hmm. is not what we want to do. I think that we have a lot of the pieces that we need to explode in popularity and be a cheap alternative to legacy and be a, a real powerhouse in terms of magic. I don't think we're ever going to see the days of, you know, 400-man tournaments in you know, New York City where it's, that's possible. But, you know, if we could hit, you know, regular 90 to 100-man tournaments once a month in the, in the various major, you know, areas for vintage, I think that would be a, a real success. And I think that, that would speak to um, both the potential of the format and the work that uh, hopefully the people in the format who are invested are willing to put in. Well stated. I've often said that it would be a great thing if we get three to four tournaments of 200 players a year. 
in the U.S. In the U.S. Because that was, I think that, if that happened, it would um, suggest that there's underlying support, so there would be centers, of, you know, and mm-hmm. then, you know, like three or four type water berries. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to say that we haven't asked you about? <laughs> oh, goodness. He'd probably kill me if I didn't do it, so <laughs> I'd like to give a shout-out to James Hangley, I guess, uh, and Mike Egan. Sure, why not? Um, other things worth saying? No, I mean, I... I I'm glad, at the very least, that we buried our hatchet as we did, uh, and it was good to meet up with everybody at Gen Con and um, play some vintage, meet some new faces. Agreed. Thank you for joining us. And it, for anyone who may not be participating in your community yet that's listening to this, how can people get involved in your area? <laughs> so there are two uh, two different means. Uh, on Facebook, you can search Stax Exchange, S-T-A-X uh, Exchange Tournament Series, and you'll find the Facebook group. Um, Click add. I'll add you into the group. I have all the tournament announcements, all the tournament reports. You can interact with other New York area uh, players there. Uh, the other means is themanadrain.com, where all my tournament announcements and tournament reports are also located. So, and what's your name on the Manadrain? Your handle? Uh, my name on the Manadrain is Prospero. So, Just so uh, people know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you search for any post by Prospero, one of my favorite Shakespeare play. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Tempest was excellent, so I'm glad we can agree on that. Uh, yeah, if you search for uh, Post by Prospero in my um, signature section, you'll find a link to the Facebook page as well. So, Great to have you. All right. Thanks, thanks again, guys. Nick. had a great time here at Gen Con. an amazing weekend. The, Gen, the Vintage Champs had fantastic attendance. Oh, yeah, that was a huge bump. How many people? 140? I think it was 140, almost 150, and we was like 30 or 40 more than last year. And we discussed also how the coincidence of U.S. Nationals definitely pulled some oh, pro yeah. players we away from Vintage. We lost 10 to 15 at a minimum. We didn't get Owen Turtenwald. We didn't Owen, get David Dave, Ochoa. Bob, I mean, all kind of people. Dave Williams, yeah. So... Just David, yeah. we're, we're riding a pretty good high, I think, right now. The format is great, and our question last time was about what deck people thought was going to win the tournament. And <laughs> of course, we thought it would be our Bob Gush deck. <laughs> right. And turns out Dredge pulled it out, right. and for the first time, a major, major win for Dredge. Now, right. there have been some wins in smaller so, events. but This is the first time, in fact, we just commented in our last, last podcast that Dredge had been making top eights right. in sort of record numbers, but it hadn't won a major event. Right, and here and, it is. And here it is. And not only that, this is the first time Bazaars have won the Vintage Champs. So now Gush has won it, Drains have won it, Workshops have won it, Dark Rituals have won it, and now Bazaar. We've completed Fantastic. it. Fantastic. Wow, the future is bright for Vintage, I would say. Yeah, and I'm really excited for Gush, and of course, I'm going to encourage people to check out my Gush book uh-huh. for quietspeculation.com to learn more about how to play Gush. It's a really skill-intensive card. Mm-hmm. You played a very interesting Gush. I okay. did. I, I still like my Lotus Cobra list, but I think yours definitely proved its success and its place in the metagame with you and, and you and Paul in the top four. So Just a curiosity, we were, you know, we, we were walking, neither of us played in the Legacy Champs. Right. I was exhausted. You know. <laughs> um, but we walked over to the finals and it didn't seem to have a lot of people around watching. The That's Vintage right. Champs was just packed. Late, at the Vintage Champs finals, there were, what would you say, 20 or 30 people? I'd say more. Crowded around. I mean, it was, it was more. elbow to elbow yeah. watching that match play out. When I approached the, the Legacy Champs last night, there were like four people. I know, on. we walked up after dinner and it was just... <laughs> It was a ghost town, really. What do you think that means? You know, it's hard to say. You know, Legacy certainly has... It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's very popular in the Star City Games uh, circuit. 
but I do think that legacy's growth is severely constrained with the price of legacy staples. And I would surmise, and, and this is a question, that legacy may, if it hasn't already peaked, it's close to peaking, simply because it's hard to get new players in. Mm -hmm. You might be able to retain the players you have there, but when you're looking at buying into a format that costs, how much is the average, let me see, a grand for about the average legacy deck? And I would Team say America, the, almost two grand? Yeah, I would say the median is probably around a grand. I mean, it's it's Maybe approaching minimum, it's approaching what people thought about vintage a few years back. Right. So, so the question for audience is just that, right? Yeah, do you think legacy has peaked, especially now that we know that Wizards is committed to modern? Right. Have we seen the apex of legacy at this point? And if it's if it's not growing, if it's not if it hasn't peaked, is it, is the growth going to be so anemic that it's basically <laughs> plateaued at least? Plateaued, yeah. right? So, give us your thoughts on that one. We thank you for your feedback on all of our questions, and we love hearing it. And it's it's very funny. Did anyone say that Dredge was going to win the Vintage Championship? <laughs> I don't think so. But if they did, congrats. Well, Vince Farino predicted it. Oh, did he? Yeah, Vinny Farino predicted it. Okay. We'll comb through our feedback uh, once we get back and see if we can find some more. Well, it's sort of sad to have to sign off here at Gen Con. Another year is is over and, and gone. I can't wait to see between now and this time next year how our show develops, how the metagame develops. Mm. It'll be our first full year going champs to champs with coverage. I'm really excited about it. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and until next year, we wish you many insane plays. Vintage is not... Gay protected games! <laughs> <laughs>